everyone. Welcome to another episode of Lasso Lowdown. We give the lowdown on all things Ted Lasso. I am your host, Lee. I am here. I am joined by my co-host, Spencer. Spencer, how are you this week? I'm excited to talk Ted Lasso, man. It's been fun to be back. Yep, we are in season two, or episode two of season three. Mm-hmm. Could be, maybe, is, could, darted a wall guessing last season. I don't know. I, well, what do you think on this? I was going to ask you the same question of where they've been so... They've been jumping back and forth. Where originally they hadn't said a word about it, so we assumed, okay, well, it can't be the last season then. Then they announced the final season of Ted Lasso, which seemed fairly conclusive, and now they seem to be trying to draw that back, saying that, no, 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 it's just the end of this arc, which I have no idea what that means. I still have hopes that maybe we're going to go see Ted do different sports across the world now. Fingers crossed for hockey next, but I my guess is as good as yours. What do you think? Well, so I've been watching The Last Kingdom lately on Netflix. And mm-hmm. back in 2019, when I was like, need drug in vain, wanting a replacement for Game of Thrones, like I was like j- shaking, yes. jonesing for it. I, this was the show. Last mm-hmm. Kingdom was the show. I just didn't know it existed. This is the Game of Thrones replacement I always wanted. Well, I started watching it when the show is concluded, right? I know that it's five seasons and only five seasons. The show is over with. Mm -hmm. I found myself watching season five differently knowing it was the last season. I'm not expecting new characters. I'm not expecting story arcs to start. I'm expecting some level of conclusion. Wrapping everything up. My expectations are very, very different if I'm watching a final season. They're doing this very clearly with Succession. They're telling us final season. You Mm -hmm. can expect a final season. I'm going to watch it as a final season. This in this this sort of purgatory I'm in with Lasso is kind of I I I, I like the season. I'm not I'm not I'm not saying it's a bad season, but it is kind of disrupting how I view it. I don't I don't know what you, I should be watching for. It. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what what should I be watching for? Am I am I watching for a final season? I don't know. So that's the one thing about this that like I still I still feel like I don't have two feet in the water because mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm watching for storylines to conclude or are we just in the middle of a story. Do you think they're keeping their options open? That maybe they don't even exactly know what the plan is going forward? Or necessarily know whether what spinoff or further options that they have will be picked up or not? I, I think that's probably the case, right? Like, because if they knew, why not tell us? Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Why, why withhold oh, that yeah. information if, if they knew? If it was true of the last season, market the crap out of that. If it isn't, and there's even more Ted, Lau- Ted Lasso after that, clarify that. Trying to do both at the same time, I, I'm, I'm with you. It leaves me in a very uncertain position of how to view what they're giving me. Yeah, so I'm going to struggle with the season until I get some clarity on that. They may not give it to me. I, I may just have to deal with this. But that is the one thing I, I wanted to get out of the way about how I'm, I'm viewing the season. But we are on episode two of season three. It is, I don't want to go, to Chelsea. <laughs> very fun episode, I feel like. I enjoyed it. Again, last week I described the first episode as a very lasso episode of lasso. Mm-hmm. I felt like, I felt like we got that again. It's, it's, it's confusing to me that, that, that this is where you and I, we differ. We can draw the battle lines. We can just start fighting. I As just don't, do. I just don't know why you end a show when they're in such a, it seems to me like such a good groove. I mean, these episodes are all quality. The characters are established. It's just so good. It's such a good groove. Keep it rolling, folks. Why not end it on a high note? If you're at the top of your game, have that be the final memory that everyone has. So they want to return to the show and experience all the best moments again, because all of the best moments are all the show. Why trail off for years of slowly declining returns? Enjoy your moment in the sun and celebrate it forever. So that's the two positions on it, but... We are on episode two of season three. I don't want to go to Chelsea. This is the last lowdown where our program is Spencer. 
That's right, Spencer, ladies and gentlemen. Heroically, every week. Bang, bang, shoot him up, knock him out, doing the recap for us. Professional that he is, he will do that for us this week. And then we will go to our segments. Uh, we actually have two segments for the recap. We start with Biscuits with the Boss, where Spencer brings a sweet treat to the podcast. I will do Tea Time with Ted, where I attempt to explain to Ted that hot tea is not quite as bad as he thinks it is. Mm-hmm. We'll jump to our post-recap segments, which include Train Wreck of the Week, um, Life Lessons with Ted, and then we then we wrap up. Uh, I think uh, that's... Okay. Or, or unless unless under circumstances where I forget it, we sometimes also do Sports Center Top Ten. Oh, what? I forgot about that segment completely. So forgot. did I. <laughs> Everyone has pointed out for a week, and I assure you, I assure you, my recap will include no extra information, no additional descriptions of history or context or culture, so that I can go through the and let me check my list forty-two separate things I prepared for Sports Center Top Ten. So first of all. Sports Center Top 10 is always 10, not 9, not 11, always 10 on the nose. We never mess that up. I'll Everyone knows down. that perfectly. And there is a massive disconnect about, about I think, this podcast, right? Because, like, you forgot a segment last week. You were, like, apoplectic afterwards, professional that you are. Like, I can't believe I forgot a segment. I had, like... 12 people, 10 people's, I don't know, some number of people write in, say how much they love the episode. Multiple people commented it was hilarious that you had forgotten the segment. I, I think that some people, I think it goes off so well that some people think we plan it. I think that's what happens. I think that they get such a, my wife, for instance, was howling in the other room because of it. I think people, when, it, when stuff like that happens, they think, oh man, the, the, this is like uh, this is like when there was something would go wrong on the Howard Stern show. Oh, it was, yeah. al- it was yeah. always planned, right? Uh, I think that's what people. But let me assure you, it wasn't planned, but apparently was very entertaining. We will get back to the Sports Center top ten this week. Not nine, not eleven. Always ten, ten on the nose. Things that we liked about the episode, or just simply found interesting about the episode. We do have a lot of things going on here on the Mangum Talks Podcast Network. We have. Season three coverage of Mandalorian going on over on Mangum Talk Star Wars. Myself and Jamie are covering that podcast uh, for season three of Mandalorian. Spencer will jump back in either this week or next week to do like a mid-season sort of uh, recap in. of where – check in of where he thinks the season's going. And then Spencer will be back with us at the end of the season. I can tell you we record tomorrow. We're on to episode four. It's a Grogu episode. I'm over the fucking moon. I'm so excited to talk about my Grogu episode. I am hyped up to talk about my Grogu episode. So that's going to be recording next uh, tomorrow. And we will have that over on Mangum Talk Star Wars. And then Spencer and I, the epic return, the final season. We know it's the final season. There's no ambiguity. It's absolutely the final season. Fuck off. We're doing season four of Succession over on the line of Succession podcast feed. I'm so excited. That will be back next week. We will review episode one. Spencer and I together. That's what's going on here on the Mango Talks podcast. Oh, I almost forgot. We have the chapter by chapter reread of Harry Potter that Spencer is on there on book five. They do that every week. I'm long. I'm a longtime fan of the podcast. I've been saying for years that that's the best podcast we have on the Mango Talks podcast network. I stand by that. Extremely good podcast. Chapter by chapter reread of Harry Potter. Spencer gets to kind of play the aloof confused guy on that podcast like oh i don't know i've just found this canon let me because i haven't read them before oh i wonder if harry will become a wizard and go to hogwarts i'm just guessing yeah it's really fun watching spencer engage engage with that canon oh oh, it makes me so happy anyway that's the chapter by chapter reread of harry potter going on over on pottering around on the mangum reads podcast feed so 
The issue today is episode two, season three. I don't want to go to Chelsea. Spencer, do you have a sweet treat for the podcast? I do. And unlike the rest of the country, Florida is already experiencing what for most places is summer. So I decided to go with a more cold treat this time around. I have got a pint of Grater's ice cream with me, specifically salted caramel, a personal favorite of mine. But I will be enjoying pretty much all of it before it, before it melts here, here during the podcast. So a couple things about this pick. This is Biscuits with the Boss. So this is what Ted would be giving to Rebecca. Ice cream, aggressive aggressive move because you're, mm-hmm. you're, forcing mm-hmm. a, you're forcing her to eat it right away. Although that doesn't seem to be a problem. Rebecca does seem to dig into the biscuits immediately, immediately yes. every time she gets them. Which is very funny to me. Grater's ice cream is an interesting ice cream between Spencer and I. I went on an ice cream kick. I had about a three-month period where I was trying every ice cream I could. I get obsessive about things if you couldn't tell in the podcast. Uh, re, see, uh, go back, reference my Grogu comment. Uh-huh. Uh, I get a tad obsessive about things. Mm-hmm. And Spencer told me, check out Grater's. I ordered a bunch of Grater's ice cream. It's like, it's like the Ben and Jerry's of the Midwest, basically. Uh, it's like the Mid- Midwestern ice cream, super famous and extremely good. A lot of good flavors. I highly recommend the Graders. Strong recommend. And again, they will dry ice, ship it to your door. Wonderful product. Yeah. Also, Graders, not a sponsor. They're just awesome. Graders gets two thumbs up for me. Absolutely. So for me, I'm doing Tea Time with Lee, Tea Time with Ted, where I attempt to explain to Ted that tea is not quite as bad as he thinks he is. I always try to pick a tea. Kind of has something to do with the episode, right? So this week... I've picked matcha green tea. Now, Ooh. Spencer, have you ever had matcha Classic. green tea? You ever had I, matcha green tea? I had, I've had matcha green tea before, yes. Now, have you had the like traditional Chinese tea ceremony with matcha green tea? No, no, no nothing resembling that, no. Okay, so if you, if you just go to the store and you get like the first thing you see that's like matcha green tea, it's probably going to be matcha powder in a tea bag. But that's the tradition, was, yes. yeah, the tradition, but the tradition that, that makes it easy. It's like very accessible. The traditional way to have matcha green tea is to actually have the powder loose in the, in the water and you stir it really heavily, but 60 or 90 seconds. You, you whip it with a whisk, a wooden whisk, and then you drink it in three gulps right away. Um, you're supposed to drink it immediately. That's the traditional way of having matcha green tea. Now I'll say matcha, great flavor. It's extremely good. There is a payoff. Matcha is good, but it is a massive pain in the ass to drink. <laughs> Just like our guy Zava. That it's, 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 it's the Zava green, this is it's the, the Zava, Zava green tea. tea. There's a payoff. Undoubtedly good. But my God, I don't want to have to sit here and stir this thing for 90 seconds to take three gulps and then do it again. I, Look, even just explaining it, Spencer was checking out. I could see oh. he was like, I'm never going to do this. Well, man, That's the Zava of tea. Don't worry. It's going to go on to 13 other people after you here in a second anyway. It's be great. <laughs> That's right. Oh, my God. Zava. And we're not – you. hey, when you when you do the Zava with the recap and you get into Zava, are you going to explain who his real-life counterpart is or are you going to save that for Sports Center? Top I am going to save that for Sports Center Top 10 because it's not directly d- displayed in the recap, sir. And I understand what our segments are now. That's really exciting. Okay, I think I'm ready to relinquish control of the podcast, control freak that I am. I'm going to hand it over to Spencer here. Spencer's going to lead us on the recap for Episode 2 of Season 3. We start with what I'm sure we're going to see many times this season, a conflict between Keeley and Barbara, specifically this episode, which we see several times, on the subject of money. Like, based on what we saw, seems to be that her backers 
are either very cost-conscious themselves or are concerned enough about Kiwi that they're keeping her on a tight leash when it comes to funds. Is that the read you get from them? Yeah, and I think it's it's absolutely realistic, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think that someone like Keely would get funded for this type of venture. I do. I think she's extremely talented. She's got ends in the in the, in this world. She's got ends in the industry. She knows what she's doing. But I think that anybody who would meet with her for an extended period of time would want to put a pretty tight leash on her as far as just the the operations of the company. Maybe perhaps her flower expenditures, if we have any data points from right there alone. Yeah. And, you know, the more I thought about this, the more Barbara doesn't know what the hell she's talking about. She's going to send flowers to people for a divorce. You know how offensive that is to some people? Like, you are presuming that they're upset about their divorce. Hey, Barbara, you don't – you you. I- I, hey, I know I'm breaking new ground here by saying Barbara is not socially adept, but I think she was wrong on this one. I got to ask you, you're going to say you have decided to send somebody flowers for a divorce. Yeah. What kind and color do you send? This might be the only time in the history of ever that I would send an edible arrangement. Oh, boy. Good call. Good call. That's because I safe, feel because a I, good bet. exactly. I feel like flowers are so loaded. Mm hmm. Like with like social meaning that if I felt if I sent the edible arrangements, maybe with a bottle of booze or something, mm-hmm. I feel like that would be more apropos of the moment. I, I think it's a great call, really, is that honestly, send somebody a meal for that kind of thing. It's a safer bet. It could be interpreted any way they want. It's just helpful. I'll tell you this. You ever go? You've been with your girlfriend since I don't know, Nixon was president. But if you ever get broken up. Pretty with, close, yeah. And you're, you're out here on your own. I'm just going, I'm probably just going to buy like 10% of Grubhub <laughs> so that they just continually <laughs> feed you. Steak. Just that they feed you now, all the time. <laughs> forewarning, the, the notice that I, that Bridget and I have broken up is that well, you just don't hear from me. No response for like two weeks straight as I have gone on a rare Spencer Bender to try to come to emotional terms with that. But you're, you'll be getting a lot of food, a lot of fried chicken. Good call. Uh, Kiwi, at, on point, Keely not really concerned with the financial discussion. She is more concerned with the subject of bonding with her employees. But Barbara, creature very much after my own heart, shuts down that idea immediately. For herself. That, for herself. Saying that she cannot make it sight unseen of what it is and when it will occur. Uh, Keely, you know, she also reassures Keely on the subject that... Uh, you may hope that this team of employees will also be into your little social shenanigans, but apparently they're like a traveling team that she's worked with before, probably all like a set group that are staffed by means of the financial investors. And they're not into it. This is the level of emotional engagement that you see from them is the max that they're expecting to get. As shown, that when Keeley, friendly person that she is, goes to leave and greets them all and tells them not to do anything that she wouldn't do, how, on a scale of 10, what is their level of emotional investment and in response to her little bit of friendliness? I think that they, so I got a couple of things on this. The, I'll answer your question first. I think that they were trying to parse what the actual command was. I think mm-hmm. they were like, were like, okay, don't right. do, like almost like right. writing notes, like don't do anything. She wouldn't like two plus seven divided, doing long division. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's what they're doing. So I manage people for a living. I manage like, a, a pretty significant number of people. I'll tell you this. The idea that Keeley would have a sort of like, we're going to bond as a team idea of the boss. And then someone's just like, I'm not going. I got preemptively angry for it <laughs> because it's like, look, 
speaking as a manager, like just go to the fucking thing. Like just your, your manager likely doesn't want to be doing this shit either, but they're putting forward effort to try to like have a cohesive team that connects and networks and whatever. Keely's doing her job. Go to the fucking picnic, Barbara. Okay, that's that's my that's what I got to say about that. I'm willing to believe from what we saw that Keely had absolutely no role whatsoever in hiring any of these people. That this has been staffed by her investors, and yeah. the personality clash is apparent. She's going to change that. She's going to start hiring people. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, maybe before this episode is over. Uh, we cut. Yeah, might be all that you get. Don't even need to finish the sentence. The theme song is here. Uh, Ted arrives with a Good Morning Vietnam reference to be happily greeted greeted by Higgins, Rebecca, and Keely, like Norm from Cheers. Uh, Ted, and I, I, I feel I speak for the audience as well, the audience is also very happy to see that Trent Krim, independent, has returned. Trent, Graham, are you kidding me? Nice to see you, man. You know, they got a big old Ziploc bag full of your hair ties down at Lost and Found. You should pop on down and get them if you want to want them. It's really helpful he's doing the book this year, because I can only imagine just how many, how large of a bag that is of his scattered hair ties. Uh, Trent has requested that he wants to follow the club for a year to write a book about them, which, to a man, Higgins, Rebecca, and Keeley are... Nope. Not as positive on the deal. Every silent gesture they can possibly offer to Ted to have him ex-nay the deal. Why? To which... Why? I'm confused why they were so against it. it that confused me. Like, it didn't... It, it's not just that I would want... Like, if I was them, I would want Trent to write the book. In world, it didn't make sense to me. Don't all these people like Trent? Like, what's the... I'm so, I don't understand. My guess is that they, they're assuming that Trent will write an honest book that offers a warts and all description about their team, and that assuming the team doesn't necessarily do well this season, which there are some concerns about, it may not be the most flattering account or something that they necessarily want people to think about when they you know think about the team. I buy that. Uh, Ted sees all of these you know silent, increasingly desperate gestures and does the most Ted thing possible in saying... Sure, join the team. Why not? Please, more friends and wonderful people with us. No time like the present, except 11-11. That's my wish timer, 23-11, if I'm on a military place or you're old Disney. Is wishing hour a thing? I did not know about this. No idea about wishing hour. I did Google it. Seems to be a thing. I didn't know about it. This is entirely new. This is entirely news to me. We're going to find out more about it later. Their discussion, though, is interrupted by breaking news that Zava is leaving Juventus. <gasps> well, yeah, I was, were you going to quote Ted there? Because it's one of my favorite Ted quotes of the entire episode. <laughs> what about their kids? <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I I didn't know what anything that meant. I didn't know what that meant. I, I thought it was like Greek mythology or something. I was just lost. I just went with that. Sorry. I, it's so funny how he... laughing my ass off with that line. I thought so you might like that line because like... Every once in a while, you get in the same spiral like that Ted just got in, which is the say the thing and then like sort of trail off a trail off. That that was my exact mindset. And we're like, there there are so many times of what the rest of the friend brace are talking about things that I have no emotional connection with and scarcely understand. But I just want to be included. What about the kids? (laughs) Very much that. Yes. I may just say that next time when you guys start talking basketball. Also, let me drag the conversation down. Shows where Ted's head at. 
His head, when he hears, he hears something like that. The first thing he's thinking is like, uh-oh, somebody got divorced. The kids, the kids aren't going to be all right. They're probably still going to be in love with their ex-wife. We probably need to get them flowers. What's the flower budget? That's probably what he's thinking. Edible arrangements, sir. Edible arrangements. Just with so. a bottle of booze. <laughs> that too. Uh, they explain, though, that Zava is a world-class, but we'll say temperamental diva of a striker who has a massive media following and has played for 14 teams in 15 years leaving nothing but chaos and trophies in his wake. Uh, he's apparently interested in joining the Premier League, though, on the basis that his wife has developed a fascination for what Ted refers to as the British pre-make of The Office. Oh, I think you mean Scranton, Pennsylvania, buddy. Uh, well, no. Uh, Ted, apparently it was actually made in the UK first. Uh-uh. <laughs> I like that when he says uh, he's leaving Italy. He says, oh, catch you later, Pepe. Th- that one was great. Because they gave Rebecca a moment mm-hmm. to acknowledge his joke. And I, probably reading too much into this, it looked flirty the way she responded to Ted on that. I think she she thought... shipping the two of them since I'm, season one, episode one. Be honest. Like, when she smiled back at him, it was at a minimum affectionate, right? It was affectionate. Certainly it was affectionate. Okay. Whether, how we interpret that affection, open for the audience there. We'll see. Uh, they, I always like when someone notices Ted's jokes because sometimes I feel like Ted's jokes are almost like surreal. Like I feel like they're being said for the audience and no one in the room actually hears them. So every once in a while, when someone responds to one, it kind of jars me. I like that the show does have characters acknowledge them. Like Higgins is still three seasons in flabbergasted by Ted, never quite certain how to take him. Roy can barely stand his presence. Meanwhile, Rebecca is, has become affectionate over time. They explain though. Uh, well, They explained that, yeah, he's probably going to be a handful, Uh, which whether that will be a salted peanuts handful or a Skittles handful, no one can be quite sure. Who doesn't like a handful? I'm also so glad to hear someone else call out Skittles. Those things just go instant liquid the moment they're exposed to direct light. You know, I thought he was going a different way with this. I thought he was saying that Skittles are the have a couple, don't have a bunch. Mm -hmm. Like... They're the exact opposite raw, like the exact opposite type of candy I want in a movie theater. I don't want to sit and eat 50 Skittles. I like a couple Skittles. Well, it's part of the reason that, you know, salted nuts are the utterly perfect bar food is that you can just happily just shovel those and then buy more drinks and enjoy the time. Skittles, one every few minutes. That kind of thing. My favorite, Uh, by the way, favorite candy at the movie theater. Go. uh, M&M's. Good, good pile of, actually, M&M's or honestly just a big pile of salted popcorn and I'll be very happy. Give me salted popcorn, some M&M's and a, and a, a big tub of soda. I'm having a fun movie experience. I'm pretty much right there with you. I like the, I like the goobers, which are chocolate covered peanuts. Mm-hmm. I could do the chocolate covered M&M too. Um, and I like, I like popcorn with it. I, I'm, I'm right there with you. Good call. Good call. Uh, Rebecca acknowledges all this, originally poo-poos the idea, but then is informed that among the teams that are considering him, West Ham and or Rupert are on that list. To which she is suddenly all in favor that they make an immediate pitch to Saba to get him on Richmond immediately. Zabba-dabba-doo! <laughs> Trent correctly deduces her real reasons, offering, so am I to assume that you're going to pursue a notoriously mercurial player... You can't really afford simply because the team your ex-husband owns wants him. Immediately, everybody else in the room starts doing uh-uh. the silent. Uh-uh. 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 But Rebecca, uh-uh. maybe may inspired by Ted or just feeling a little bit brazen, owns up to it. To which Trent, 
I adore this, just says, love, love that. that. Love it. It's a yeah, great I, I think it's wonderful. Like, you know, I, I, I love that. Like, so I feel like the show is called Lasso, but I think there's an argument to be made that maybe what we're watching is a woman get over a divorce because the, mm-hmm. the, the person who's made the she most growth. Yeah, the person who's had the most growth has been Rebecca. She was a step next to broken in episode one of the first episode or this first season. And now she's confident enough to be able to go, yeah, I'm being a little petty with my ex-husband and kind of laugh it off. Like, I feel like she's grown. If we can see Roy voluntarily accept a hug before the end of this season, I will say that he's had farther character growth. But yes, otherwise, Rebecca and maybe Jamie are the ones that are competing. (laughs) No threat of that this episode with Trent Cram. He's not hugging Trent. Ah, dear God, no. Nor anyone else who offers. Oi! Uh... Ted and Keeley, though, are, are t- walking and talking afterwards and bonding over the subject of what you maybe do for social events with coworkers after work. Uh, their options range from escape room to doing hallucinogens with a shaman under a blood moon and presumably everything in between. Clamato, clamato. Uh, Lee, as you said, you're a manager. I have to ask, where do you stand on the subject of social events with employees after work? Not during work, after work, like on a Saturday or something. Okay, so I think as the manager, it's my responsibility to offer some things to do as a group, but not to shut anything down that happens organically. Mm-hmm. If a group of people, they, they all decide we're going out for drinks, we're doing blah, 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 blah. Like, I don't need to touch that. It's great that that's happening organically. I don't need to go. Good. Mm-hmm. The, but the thing, that. But the thing that I offer needs to be offered through the lens of being accessible to everyone. So A, I don't do anything around alcohol because I don't know who drinks or who doesn't drink. Very fair. Two, I don't do anything at night because I think it's unfair to intro. I don't, well, kids, but I also also don't think it's unfair to introverts. Like, because if you are making people work and interact and be going all day, some people need to recharge their batteries at night. And if you ask them to be out till nine, 10 o'clock at night, it's just not a fair ask to certain people. So the thing that I would do is probably during work hours, so they get you know they get getting they can bill it, uh, you know have something in a conference room with food sitting around, maybe watching a something, a game, a movie, or something, and don't let it go past five. I think that's what you do as a manager, and I think if you do that, you're you're not going to piss anybody off. So would you bring the hallucinogens and the shaman to you at the office then, rather than go to him? I do, I do spike the popcorn with a little toad venom, but I hear that wears off after about 30 minutes and you're good to drive. Well, but they will be forever changed as a result. Yeah, right? that's, team what building moment. that's what you want. That's what you want. Toad venom with the team. Clamato, clamato. Uh, Isaac walks up and is interested in shoes. Not a brand, just shoes. <laughs> Keely offers to help with whatever the hell that means. While she and Jamie exchange what I would say is polite, but a little bit awkward greetings. Is that that how you kind of summarize how the two of them are talking with each other? So I love this show because the interaction with Isaac wasn't really that funny and absolutely could have been cut. Like that was unnecessary, but they decided to keep it in, which the fact they, the fact they kept it in is funnier to me than the scene. Um, So there's that, but the, the Jamie interaction is well written and well acted every time I see it. It's exactly mm-hmm. how a guy looks when they respect a woman they 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 used to date, respect an ex, yeah. but they 
first and foremost, respect her. He does respect her and he doesn't want to be rude to her, mm-hmm. but he absolutely is leaving the door open for future yes. endeavors. He, he is not over That's her. that he's walking he's walking that line, right? He doesn't want to go up and be like, Hey babe, what you doing tonight? and be rude because first and foremost he does respect Keely, but he also kinda wants to make it clear there's still some affection there. It, and he's also scared of and he's also scared of Roy kicking his ass, so he's got that to worry about. And mixed with, I think he just legitimately feels a, a still a little bit uncertain about how to interact with her now that he is, A, not dating her, and B, not actively going for her. It's a new kind of interaction between him and women, particularly one that he was attracted to. Uh, Isaac, uh, you know, they, they share their greetings. Keely walks off and is greeted by Roy. We don't hear a word, but Isaac, student of kinesics that he is, reads Roy and Keely's respective body language and deduces that they have broken up. Yep. The show then plays another bit it's of science. Little, it, absolutely. The show then plays another little bit of a fast one, the same way they did back in episode one, of where we see Jamie, notice this, seem very intrigued, and start to follow what appears to be Keely down the hallway. It holds to that until we reach the very end of the hallway when Keely goes left, Roy goes right, and Jamie follows Roy. Because Jamie, Jamie, I, I was saying this earlier. Jamie has had an arc almost like Rebecca in terms of how far he has come from where he started, of where he is no longer only the self-absorbed playboy that he was. Now he legitimately cares about not not just a teammate, but also about Roy, and he is going to check on him about this because he reasonably, and I think rightfully, assumes that Roy may not be in the best state as a result of what happened. Uh, Jamie is Ted's biggest professional win in season one and two. The the crowning achievement of the job that he has done, I think, is Jamie. I adore the character development with respect to it, just from a production standpoint, because it's very believable. It has had time to work. It has had moments that have driven it. It it feels perfectly natural. Uh, Roy, though, is, uh, I think, fair to say not in a mood to be comforted about this right now, Uh, nor to have the first of what will be many people this episode assume that it was Keeley that dumped him. I increasingly get frustrated on his behalf as that discussion continues to happen. Uh, in short order, uh, Roy, uh, Roy, Roy can't recognize expressions of empathy or gestures towards giving him a hug and assumes empathy. wrongfully that Jamie is just trying to get permission to go after Keeley, leading to some wonderful moments of Jamie. It's called empathy, you dusty old fart. And when he goes try to hug him, what the fuck are you doing? I was going to hug you. Well, you came at me too fast. Jesus, sorry, I forget how skittish elderly people are because uh, I, I forgot how skittish elderly people could be because of the war. Reasonable <laughs> I was trying to comfort you. And then and then the kit man is there, Will, and the shit rolls downhill, right? So Jamie oh, immediately yeah. starts yelling at the kit man. Hey, don't you tell anybody. You know, like, yeah. kick, the, kick the dog type thing. Yeah, Roy swears him to science. Jamie immediately swears Will to science. Will tries to briefly bond as a kindred spirit. Maybe they can go out and drinks yeah, together. and that go goes, get a bite. Absolutely nowhere. Poor Will. Crickets. Crickets. Uh, in the coach's office, continuing a trend of Ted starting to actually give a damn about understanding soccer. Uh, sorry, football, as Ted himself says in this conversation. He's reading Inverting the Pyramid of Success by Jonathan Wilson. He's reading Beard's soccer strategy book. He's not we get a little bit of Beard, though. We, we get to learn a little bit about Beard. He's doing a voice to text, and he's saying, well, you are a sleepwalker. I don't know what else to tell you, period. That's what he says when he walks through the door. Assuming that's Jay. (laughs) We'll hear more about her this episode, too. Uh, 
Ted hasn't gotten far into this book, but he's trying. Specifically, well, given the struggles I've already had with the table of contents, I think I might be best served to wait until this son of a gun comes out as a movie. But again, he's trying. And again, he refers to it as football in this conversation. This man's getting properly converted to a sport, and it's only taken three years to do it. Uh, so, credit for trying at least. A trend that I legitimately hope continues. I was getting a little bit frustrated in Season 2 that he wasn't seemingly investing more into actually learning the game, given that he's a coach of a team and he seems to really care about doing a good job and shouldn't be putting that all on other people. So, it's a bit belated, but I'm here for it. Ted. The table of contents is for reference. You don't really need to read it. Like, start on page one. There's probably narrative there, something to actually get you into it. Better way to go it, to go about it. Uh, he asked Beard, uh, given that Beard is his resident soccer expert, whether bringing Zava to the team would be a good idea. Ah! Yes, it earns the first of what is several Homer Simpson-style little screams, which, given the Ned Flanders references last week, I just was chuckling every time it happened, which is like four or five times this episode. This one is of excitement. The other ones are more varied later. Uh, it was funny that Ted clarifies that, though. He goes, that's good, right? That was and good, he, right? And yeah. Beard's just like, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can't yeah. breathe for Very much. good. Very uh, good. He also reveals that t even Ted actually knows who Zava is by showing him a viral robbery-thwarting headbutt video, which Ted has apparently previously been familiar with. Shout out uh, to Zava. Coolest thing I see him do all, see, all episode. episode. Going proper, proper Zidane on the guy? Yeah. Uh, their video watching and their wishing hour, which comes up now, and apparently has rules. Like, there are rules and there are standards and how one wish can affect another or not. Again, this is apparently a whole thing I, I did not know existed. Well, you can't tell somebody else's that's your wish. That's, that's crazy talk, Ted. That's not how it works. Uh, well, Ted specifically doesn't make it so they don't uh, cancel each other out if they have the same wish, which Beard reassured me is how it works. But again, we're getting off track. We'll have to research wishing hour later. There's been a bit of a squabble in the, walker, in the locker room between the players. Ted, charging in with a full head of steam, twice wrongfully assumes what the hell they're arguing about. Going into both the possibilities of it being the subject of Zava or the subject of We're getting them, Zava? Which... We're getting Zava? 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 We're getting Zava? It so rapidly spirals out of control that the last statement on the subject of it is, why would Zava write a book about Trent Krim? Man, that got to feel real quick. Ted, finally getting everybody to calm down, clarifies from them that what they're really freaking out about is that the news about Keeley and Roy is starting to make rounds. Ah! It earns another beard yelp. Ted just straight up faints. He literally like, you know, Victorian woman style swoons at the news. <sighs> Roy, finding out that now everybody knows, immediately assumes that Jamie spills the beans and charges him to possibly murder him. Jamie it, And I, I believe Jamie. I don't think Jamie revealed it. If I had to guess, I mean, those, most likely options are either Isaac or Will, and I'm leaning towards Isaac because he had no reason Isaac. to think it needed to be kept secret. He was Isaac, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh... Through more confusing word banter back and forth, Roy confirms that Zava is nuts, but will help them win some games. And also, he doesn't want to talk about Keeley. Ted is, of course, utterly undissuaded by that, and sends Will to go get his Ted's Breakup Mix CD, because of course he's got one. What's a CD? That line made me feel so old. That was the intent for everyone in the room and all the audience, but it worked. Luckily, Beard does know what a CD is, also has a set of Ted's keys, and is heading off to immediately get that CD as fast as possible. 
The room, though, again assumes that Roy was the dumped party. I, you you said you don't feel bad for Roy about this. Please explain. It doesn't make any sense. He's out kicking his coverage, and then he and then he breaks up with her. It, it doesn't. It, I mean, it's a reasonable assumption on everybody's part. I'm gonna tell you this. If I was Roy and I was dating Keely and I broke up with her, I would have to leave that. I'd be like, guys, I, I, I like, I would, I would assume that I needed to tell people that. That's, it, you know, it's, it's like, that, um, it's do you look? You never how, assume, though. You should never assume this? who broke up with who. How about this? If Patrick Mahomes left the Chiefs, you would assume that he wanted to leave. You would think there's no way the Chiefs fired the best quarterback in the league. Like. That's that's the situation we're dealing with. Okay. Again, you see Keeley is at under 11. It all makes sense. Uh, yeah, well, so does the whole world. Okay. Uh, Beard, apparently, Beard and Ted apparently <laughs> do too because they freak the hell out upon this news. We get another Beard Yelp. We're getting all emotions associated with Beard Yelps before this is over. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, happily, though, saving Roy from the worst conversation he's ever had in his life from his perspective... Trent Krim arrives. Roy is immediately staring daggers at this guy, which brings up the fact I don't think they've actually interacted before in a scene previously on the show. Hadn't thought about that. It's great writing. It's great writing. They're able to introduce backstory that existed in season one and two. We just didn't see it in season one and two. Like it's a, it's it's pretty cool that they picked that for these two characters because you're right. They, they hadn't interacted. I want to go back. You said you were you were irritated on Roy's behalf. You think it's even remotely reasonable that Roy would be breaking up with Keeley? I mean, you you, you don't think Keeley's an eleven? I know you're a Rebecca fan. By the way, how did Rebecca look in this episode? Damn fine. She does look pretty good this episode. Strong season from Rebecca. But oh, back yeah. back to topic. You you think like you would be if you'd be like thinking this is like a topic of conversation? Like 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 no, it, it's it's I, possible I, he could have broke up with her. I would be annoyed on people's behalf, but even if everyone assumes that the the 99% odds favorite is that Keeley broke up with him, that they're, to his face, assuming that. You let people reveal that information even if you assume it's true. It's just rude to work off that assumption there to somebody else. All right. You've, you've swayed me. I do think it's I, – I think it's rude to assume, although I would have assumed. Yes. Uh Ted reveals that Trent will be writing a book about them this season. But Roy, having happily found something else to be angry about, though for reasons we don't presently understand, declares, did you write it down? Did you do a perfect Roy voice? Oi! Listen up! No one says a fucking word around this fucking prick unless they want my forehead through their fucking skull. This is so persuasive that even Danny declares, I mean, fuck off, Trent Cream. That is a persuasive thing right there. Question for you. Did you see the actor who played Jamie in the scene? No, actually. How did he react? <laughs> it looked like he was breaking. When Roy was screaming, Oi! Oh, fucking run out! Like, he was doing this. The the actor who played Jamie looked like he was trying to hold it in. He was he was kind of far back in the locker, like against a locker. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad they kept it in because I love those little nuggets where an actor's like starting to break a little bit because – it's got to be funny when Brent Goldstein's just like blah, 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 on, the, on the set. Like that has to be a pretty funny thing to, to deal with. It's it's perfect that the actor that the actor that plays Jamie did that because his line later about it's actually quite funny when he yells at other people and it's then just all the better if the actor himself is breaking at those lines. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, so every the the gauntlet has been thrown. 
silence is the only thing that Trent Krim can be exposed to from here. Roy's word is God. And law, too. Uh, meanwhile, Keeley is at her commercial shoot, which appears to involve an adorable mini-lamb at a dance club who may or may not be dying in a minute from Keeley trying to get it, get it to drink a Kafka mini to thereby transform into a lion. Did I summarize that accurately? From the rooftop, shout it out. I, I left out the music. I'm ready to go. Perfect dance club music. I'm ready to go. Yeah, great song. You you nailed it. That's exactly what's going on. Um, listen, Keely's an ideas concern. person. I think it's a reasonable She's concern. She's an ideas Keely person. We've tried to feed that lamb. Maybe. She's an ideas person. And it's yes. totally like, here's, I'll say this on behalf of Keely. I'll say many things on behalf of Keely. I'll say I, I this know. one. Um, She's always okay if you veto her idea. Yeah. She's, she's got ideas, but she doesn't get, exactly. She doesn't get mad if you're like, well, you know, we really can't force feed the lamb. It'll kill it. Whatever. She's like, okay, great. That's fine. No worries. She, it was just an idea. Yeah. I do still share the other people's concerns that maybe she doesn't actually get that will immediately kill the lamb. It's apparently an enzymes thing. Uh, one of the many extras, though, is apparently Keely's old friend from modeling, Shandy Fine. They basically ah! yeah, when they that, scream at each other, it jarred me. <laughs> it every single time. They can hit a pitch together; it resonates. Uh, they've apparently been from what we've seen, but out of touch for a while. And Shandy confirms that most, if not all, of their old friends and herself are either married to footballers, were married to footballers, and are now back in modeling. Shandy is mostly just overjoyed and proud that Keely got out all by herself, though, as she puts it, appearing in Vanity Fair fully clothed. It's a sad little line. Uh, she's also got some helpful tips and good sense on how to make the, the uh, club look more full without, as the other people were recommending, hiring 100 extra extras. Good Lord. They really made modeling sound like stripping or prostitution in this, right? With that whole, like, you got out it, thing. Yeah. But, like I, I, I didn't have this. I didn't have the same negative opinion of modeling as maybe the writers do here, because like they they clearly are framing it as the type of thing that like people do because they have no other option and they're just trying to get out of doing it. I agree. It was an, it was an interesting take on the subject. It may be driven by the fact that while Keeley was a you know a bit a, a bit more upper upper level about her modeling, it seems like the friends that. Shandy and they were talking about were not as like, you know, top of the game, top of the field, and were more gig to gig trying to make a living. And that yeah. does sound like it wouldn't be the best. Uh, having, you know, I'm also wondering if they had gone with the hundred extras plan, how do you think Barbara would have reacted when Keeley brought that bill back to her? Well, she wouldn't have gone to the picnic. She would not have gone to the picnic <laughs> later that day. She wasn't going anyway. <laughs> Uh, yeah, now she'd have been pretty pissed off for sure. Shandy, what Shandy has an idea about how to use the strobe lights to make it seem like more people, right? Yeah, to make it artificially appear like the club, the club, the club is more crowded than it is, which the experts there love. And Shandy walks off to do her job because she's basically been hired as a day laborer herself on the set. That with some longing and whimsy, that maybe she will get out herself someday. You see, you said it there, like a day laborer on the set. I just didn't think of models this way, but I guess that's that's what we're going with for the show. There are, there are all levels of all professions, and it seems like she's working on a little bit of the lower end. Okay. Uh, Rebecca, meanwhile, it, it, you talked about scenes that could have been cut. This next scene between Rebecca and her mom really could have been cut, I think. Unless it sets up something 
for the next couple episodes. It really confused me why they put it in. I agree with you. This, I like the second half of the episode better than the first, but for me, this was kind of like the nadir of the episode because I did not get the point of this scene, and I don't particularly like her mom as a character. But she's taking a video call from her mom, who is just as weird as ever. She's apparently sleeping in a hotel room while on a three-day camping retreat because there are too many stars, and she felt like they were staring at her. And meanwhile, she's getting Rebecca a possible in with her psychic tish. So this actress plays the sort of absentee mother in this show and Succession. Yes, right. She does. It's the same she's actress in Succession. Cash. It's unfortunate. But I would say that, like, I want to see the Succession character here. This character is too absurd, and it's yeah. actually kind of not funny. The succession character is a little bit more subtle in how absentee and just basically a bad mother that she is. Like she presents in the first few minutes is pretty good. And then it starts to all break down as you learn more about the character. Mm -hmm. That to me is more interesting than this like hyper absurd version of the character. The the show itself likes to be ludicrous. It likes to be silly. But occasionally that can be concentrated in one person to such a degree that I'm rolling my eyes. And that's Rebecca's mom for me. Yeah, um, and we didn't we all didn't we kind of get the same thing different into the spectrum with Sam a little bit last season last season where we were like this is they, not a real this is not a real character there it's over the they top made him such a golden of boy, what they're yeah. going for yeah, yeah they, okay. they wanted to make him so so perfect that it was all, it, they they were they were they were losing track of him as a grounded character and viewing him more as a prop for Rebecca and a, and a prop for various other social social issues they wanted to bring up which unfortunately loosed from the earth what is otherwise a very interesting character but we haven't seen as much this season we'll see much more where they go with him uh higgins helpfully arrives though as the bearer of bad news confirming that zava will not meet them as i quote it would be a waste of time for us and an embarrassment for him dear christ ow zava don't play i don't know Uh, sounds like a starting point for negotiations Sure, maybe. We'll see. <laughs> Perhaps those negotiations secured a urinal while you uh, sour yell them. We'll find out how that goes. Uh, as a consolation prize, though, Higgins does reveal that he will be signing with Chelsea rather than West Ham. Though, I honestly think they should have paid a little bit more attention to the point that Zava oddly, specifically, and publicly denied that he would be signing with West Ham. Rebecca interprets that as, oh, that's just going to get uh, Rupert all the more fired up. I interpret that as being... Uh, that seems like cover. That seems like me thinks he does protest too much kind of thing. Uh, regardless, Hig- Higgins, ju- what, sorry, you were about to say something. Yeah, I just, I assume that this Rupert whole thing, working behind the scenes and they. Yeah, this whole thing struck me t- in a, in a parallel to what's going on in the, re- in the real sports world right now. So this is where I'll give you a little real Please. world sports world. So Zava appears to be negotiating on behalf of himself. This is happening in the NFL right now. There's a player, Lamar Jackson, who's the quarterback for the Baltimore Ravens, who is a former MVP, one of the, I would say top maybe seven quarterbacks in the league. Hmm. NFL quarterback's the highest paid position in all team sports in the whole world, Mm -hmm. uh, except for a few soccer players here and there. Like, this guy should be getting a max contract, making $50 million a year or whatever. But he's decided to negotiate on behalf of himself. And it's... It's really difficult for the teams. They're they're having trouble with it. This guy, former MVP of the league, top seven quarterback in the league, 
has take it's taken him two years to get a contract because he's negotiated on behalf of himself and doesn't really know what he's doing. It, that, that surprised, it, it kind of, I felt like there was a parallel here, right? Because like Zaza, like Zava is so all over the place negotiating on behalf of himself. He clearly is not like somebody who's trained how to do this. No, Lamar no, no, Jackson's no. going through the same thing. And I think he's losing money by the day because of it. I think that's very possible. I also, though Rebecca seems to think that Rupert hasn't been as heavily engaged. The line there about, you know, I will not sign with West Ham implies to me that when Rupert greets Zava in the box, that wasn't the first time they've met. No, of course not. Uh-uh. Uh, uh, Higgins, however, just clearly jinxes the whole thing by saying there's nothing Rupert can do, nearly ruining everything. <sighs> Damn it. Damn it, Leslie. And he's not done yet. Uh, Trent, meanwhile, it, we said, is an utter persona non grata. No one's talking to him. People are barely even acknowledging his existence. Hey, did you catch the song that pl- that the Trent's, Trent's wrestling entrance music, uh, the music that was playing for Trent when he walked in? No, you're hyper aware about that. What was it? A well-respected man by the Kinks. <laughs> I thought that was a yeah. really nice touch. That was kind of funny. Well done. Appreciate it. The show, the show is delightfully on the nose when it comes to its song choices. That's pretty funny. Uh, even worse than being ignored by everyone, Ted has paired Trent and Roy as sharing an office while Trent spends the whole year here. That was not a mistake. That this- was not a mistake. This is one of the things that worry. This is one of three things. This is either very intentional, in which case it is a one hell of a practical joke. Two, it's forced counseling. Or three, it is just profoundly bad luck. But I'm with you. I'm refusing to believe that Ted did not intentionally pair these two. Why I, is open to interpretation. I've got two guesses. Please. The first is a little, a little obvious, right? It's when he screams, "I fucking hate this guy!" Don't you, you know, Ted? has gone through Exposure a lot of therapy. He's gone through a lot with Trent and that will not stand, right? He is not going to have somebody on his coaching staff outright hate Trent. He respects Trent too much. Mm-hmm. So he's going to make this thing work through exposure therapy. I like, I like how you put that. The second idea I had was remember last episode when Roy said, I know I don't have Nate's big super brain and, and Ted and beard looked at each mm-hmm. other like, hmm, we're gonna have to work yeah. on this. This might be Ted might be thinking this is a distraction, so he doesn't sit in his office and just stew and beat himself up and 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 you know go over strategy more than he needs to. Now he's got to deal with Trent that gets him out of his own head a little bit. He's putting a rock in his shoe so we can't so he has to actually be grounded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like uh, my my foot hurts and you punch you in the face. So did your foot hurt anymore? Yeah, kind of. That's kind of deal. Okay. Uh, Roy's desk is meanwhile covered covered in a mix of what appear to be <laughs> condolence cards, <laughs> gifts, balloons. Do uh, people not know this guy? He doesn't want this shit. It's it, it's such a good parallel for you. Like it really is. I don't because want like, the shit. I know you I that's what that's why I, I laugh because it's like like first of all if I went through a breakup and people did this for me, I'd be touched, I'd cry, I'd be so You'd happy, be I'd thank everybody. I'd be sitting. Thank you notes. You're a human. You 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 would be clearing this shit off with a shovel. Like get it away from me. Like it's a, such a funny concept. And then like and and, and like it, part of me questioned like were they fucking with Roy a little bit here? Like, they know he's not going to like this, right? Well, there's different, there's possibly different motivations going on here. But also, yes, if I got all, that whole mix of cards, the only thing, only response people would get would be a single mass text to everything on my phone of just me burning them in a, burning them in a bin. That would be what I would just, send around. Just angry grunts. Ugh, get this, a- ugh, angry grunts, on. entirely, yes. 
Uh, there's one there's one notable card here I want to discuss though. The big sea card. <laughs> which just says plenty of fish in the sea. Get it? XX Liza. Who's I Liza? I left to ask. Who the hell is Liza? Now I I mind the internet. There is a Twitter theory that's going around at least of one Liza we do know exists. Of where in Season 2, Episode 6 of Ted Lasso, when Ted is at his most manic and is greeting every employee when he comes in, he points to Eliza and says, Hey, Liza, saw your Instagram post on Sunday. Way to keep that ice bucket challenge alive. That's the only Liza we've met on the show. There's a lot of Liza that actually just work on like the production of the show, so it could just be an in-joke reference to them. But I, based purely on what we see in this episode... Are we being asked to think or assume this is an ex, ex-girlfriend or someone else that's interested in who's trying to make a move? So here's a little life lessons with Lee. Um, when you are in a long-term relationship with someone, right? And you're like a, a, like a normal, you're not like an asshole or something. You're like a good person, right? Sure. Yeah, I'm with you. Like, and you break up. There's going to be somebody that you didn't expect make a move on you. And and it there's going to be somebody you don't expect make a move on the person you were dating. And it's going to piss you off, whoever it is, because you're going to think, oh, that motherfucker. Like, he was just whining and wait. Like, there will be somebody who does this. Like, this is really, I think, super realistic where sure. the breakup happens. And then, and then somebody that you just, like, you say hello the, to every once in a while. You don't know. All of a sudden, it's like, rest. "Hey, you want to go on a date?" And you like it is. It all. It's like it all clicks into place for you, transformer work. style. You're just like, "Coo coo coo coo," and it all clicks, and you're like, "That person liked me all along," and you probably didn't expect it. Same thing will happen to your ex. Uh, do we think that Roy is in any way interested or intrigued based on his reaction to this card? He's he seems as intrigued in Liza as he is these fucking balloons. <laughs> Or trick crim or <laughs> anything else. Annoyed. I don't think I don't think he's in the headspace for it right now. He, he is annoyed at the attempt, at least at this stage. Uh, Roy takes pains to not engage with Trent to the point that he actually just starts popping the balloons slowly, <laughs> individually, for the sake of just annoying Trent and getting him out of the room. Even funnier is that while he's doing this, Trent is trying to tell his publisher, who, by the way, is probably giving him an advance. Yeah. Probably giving him an advance for the book that he's living off of. Yeah. He, everything's going super great. Like, going trust fine. me. Going fine. <laughs> the guy's just passed my balloons. Pissed off at him in the back. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, back at KGPR, Barbara is giving Keely her company credit card, which she may never use. Again, they are being tight with the purse strings when it comes to Keely. Uh, that, by the way, anybody anybody who's worked in a big corporate apparatus, that is a very funny line. Here's your corporate credit card. Do not use it because yeah. that, like the company I work for, we we give we'll give our employees corporate credit cards. But it's like you get a corporate credit card, but here's a 30 minute mandatory training you must do that tells you <laughs> the 500 ways you shouldn't use it before I give it to you. It's basically the same thing. Well, does the corporate credit card involve getting drinks later? Possibly, maybe. We'll discuss that. No, when we get I got, there. and I have thoughts on that. Well, I got well, thoughts we, on that text. Yeah. It, meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, for my firm, my entire office of my firm, the office for the city, there is one corporate credit card, and there are only certain people that are allowed to touch it. That's the level of security they do with the corporate credit card. Uh, wow that that reminds me. That reminds me. One time, I uh, I got a I got a tour of the White House. If you can believe that, I really did. 
And I saw President Obama's passport. Was it behind glass or something? How did you get in to see it? I the person who I was it was like I was friends with a friend who was a travel. Were coordinator you in his bedroom? He, no, no, the, the travel coordinator kept it um, and pulled it out and showed us. But it was very much like the can't touch it thing. So now my vision is like your company corporate credit cards, like the Obama passports. <laughs> you can look at it. It's like the Mona Lisa, but it's behind plated glass. I, 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 I have to send up emails to a vet chain of people to be able to charge something on that damn card. Uh, Keely, though, not interested in really in the corporate credit card. She is more interested in introducing their new consultant for affiliate management and client relationships, Shandy. Shandy! Shandy yeah. Here she is. Barbara is, uh, I would think it's fair to say, less than amused. Uh, and in what would, even by my standards, is just utterly, intolerably brutal fashion, confirms by direct questions to Shandy, and I'll summarize as she does to Keeley, so... You've hired a former model with no previous experience, no higher education for a job that doesn't exist. Lovely. So isn't this a modeling agency? I don't know what they actually do. I don't know. I, I thought they actually I think it's a, like media, I think, like actually producing commercials like we saw. I think that they're a, they, they manage talent. They're a talent management company and they do manage models. Healy is a former model. I think throwing in former model in a disparaging way is absolutely inappropriate in this situation. But like up until now, Barbara has been the type of caustic that I felt like Keely caustic needs about. Yeah. Keely kind of needs, right? Yes. Here, here she branches over into needs to be called on the carpet immediately. Rude, like absolutely unacceptable. Because Keely still is her boss. Yeah, this is one of the things of where Barbara's concerns and frustration with Keely. I actually think they're fairly reasonable from what we've seen before, and even some of the concerns she has about hiring Shandy. There's, there's even more concerns beyond what she even goes into. I sympathize with her in that regard, but her treatment of Shandy here to her face in front of Keely. Is utterly inappropriate and unprofessional. It, 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 it's, it's completely beyond, beyond the pale. And if she wanted to do a private talk afterwards with Keeley on the subject of, I've got concerns about you hiring Shandy. Here's the concerns I have. You really should vet and run these by me so we can go over these before this happens. That would have been perfectly fine. If anything, I would have encouraged it. But doing this here as she did it, it she has better sense than this. And based on how she acts in the next scene, appearing thoroughly chastened, I think she gets it. I think that this was a brief tilt moment that she's immediately regretting. I agreed. Agreed with that, that what she just said there. I also think it's rude to Keeley because Barbara is the CFO. Barbara does not run the she's business. She Keely does not to... interact with talent. She's not the reason they generate revenue. Like this person has clearly been hit hired to do the talent management side to work with Keeley's side barbara shouldn't be fucking saying that anyway other than giving a budget but she shouldn't mm -hmm. be she shouldn't have any input in who gets hired into this she doesn't have any experience in that she has experience in ensuring that your 
company tax returns get filed at the appropriate time and that you don't go over budget and you know all this stuff that's but, important, but it's not revenue generating. Well, I will say that she probably has a significantly more business experience than Keely, than Keely has just generally, even outside of her a particular field of being a CFO. So she can provide, I'm sure, a lot of a lot of a lot of guidance, a lot of advice when it comes to hiring people, qualifications to look for, things along those lines. At least as a general matter. But I'm with you. If she wanted to present those, she, she does it in private to Keeley. She doesn't undermine Keeley's authority in front of somebody that Keeley just hired and one of Keeley's friends. Yep. Keeley rightfully charges in to confront her right away, only to be distracted by the first bit of character that she's picked up about Barbara. Her absolutely side table covering colossal snow globe collection, which we learn is one each from each of the innumerable places that she's been sent by her company in the past, which... Do we have a guess how many globes are on that table? 40? <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. 40 seems like a good number. Keely disrupts is charming, but I also think it's more than a little bit sad. It straight up implies that she hasn't really, due to the nature of her job, her real only connection that she's established to all the places that she's been been has been a snow globe. She's had no time to set down roots, no opportunity to make friends or establish connections. It makes her very business-focused and very guarded, which... We, what we have seen out of this person now makes a lot more sense. Hey, look at that. Well done, Ryan. Uh, it's also, it also illustrates Keeley's talent. Because she is Keely, aware of it. Exactly. Yeah, she noticed it. She noticed it was sad, but she also noticed it, it's a way to humanize and connect with her. Like, that's one thing you can do as a boss is like, you don't need to be up in people's business, but if you figure out like there's a thing they like, like I got, I got one guy who works for me who loves the Mandalorian. We talk about the Mandalorian on his weekly check-ins every week. Like whatever the thing is, if you, you latch onto a thing or two with people, like you don't have to beat it in the ground. You don't have to talk about it every single time, but it does show you're paying attention. Mm-hmm. It shows that you care about them as people. And like, I think it kind of can go, it can go a long way with certain personalities. And, and Barbara is, seems to me like somebody that people haven't taken a lot of time to get to know in the past. I'm straight up with you. This is Keely's Keely's a smart person. And this is the game that she's most effective at of where she immediately reads this. She makes the connection and she immediately draws it back to what she actually wanted to talk about, about maybe you and I can see, see how good it feels to believe in someone else together. Yeah. It's like all those people believed in you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's expertly played. Uh, and Barbara responds to it immediately by noting that Shandy, t- to refer to an actual position that exists with the company, is now their client relations coordinator. Which, as you said, if they are indeed a modeling agency, or at least are heavily affiliated with models, having somebody that has experience and knowledge in the field as the relations coordinator makes sense. Yeah, so don't say former model in such a fucking derisive way. That 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 The fact that she built that off, didn't go to university, that felt very professionally egotistical maybe that she was looking down on people that didn't have her back her background it's classist it's absolutely classist uh back at richmond trent again tries to engage with roy in a brief scene but is simply told to fuck off it's a fine enough scene this is a 48 something minute episode this is again a scene of we already got it you don't necessarily need to return to it but they did and this one of the of the other ones I'm, i'm most i'm most okay with this one I I was okay with this one because it got a real belly laugh out of me because I was I was honestly expecting same, same the way the that Isaac they framed scene. it, the way they because the way because it was at night 
And, you know, Trent came to him in a very humble way. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like they were expect the, the audience was supposed to expect Roy to respond. Do, and he just age. goes, fuck, fuck off. off. <laughs> it, 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 is, it is effective in that regard for, you know, subverting expectations. Next day, though, yep. Rich, Richmond is playing Chelsea at Stanford Bridge Stadium. And Ooh. I think it. You know odds better than I do. Based on what we hear from the announcers, what do you think the odds are when it comes to this game? I would say that probably Richmond was two score underdogs, maybe two and a half score underdogs, like heavy underdogs. Substantial, substantial when it comes to soccer. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. They are casting aspersions against Richmond, not only not winning this game, but not even staying in the Premier League. They've basically written them off entirely going into game one of the season. Fans at May's Pub, though, more than a little bit helpful and and not even a little bit underdressed for the occasion. Up in the stands, though, we get a rapid fire series of events. We first get, and this is the scene you and I discussed that I want to talk about in detail with you, a worrying text from Shandy to Keeley. Did you write it down? I didn't actually get the text written down. But- yeah. Yeah, I did. Uh, it says, let's bring mimosas to work tomorrow. Use that company card, exclamation point. So what do we make of this, sir? So I think it's, I think that we, it's dangerous to hire your friend. It's it always it's always dangerous to hire your friends because they may not understand, be able to separate the dynamic and they might still talk to you like like a buddy. Mm-hmm. It's also hard to talk to them like because you feel like such an asshole because you're like, oh, let me let me fucking let me, let me put on a different hat while we have this conversation. Yeah, let me like like, um, you know, set boundaries and rules and let me like give negative performance feedback to my buddy. Like that's a fucking hard thing to do. So she's going to, she's going to go through some growing pains with this and, and she's either going to learn how to do it effectively, which Keely is absolutely capable of doing because she's that good with people or she's going to stop hiring her friends, I think. But you know, the, I think she responded the right way because like when she threw in the use that company card, it made me think it might've been a partly a joke. Like, because that it's like she was like relying on she was like a callback like a callback joke yeah i was hoping it, it i was hoping that's what it was and not real i th- i interpreted it as real and as a dig at barbara it's like you know fuck her let's go let's go do that kind of thing like, you know, uh, and if let's it's te- that let's then... team up against her because she obviously was an asshole yeah that's a big problem right and so like keely now is in this really difficult position of like having to go to her friend and say hey this behavior is not acceptable. Like, and you have to have that tone. It's just, it's going to be it's hard awful. for her. I hope, I hope they show it. I, I hope that doesn't do happen off screen. I really want to no. see the cons because there's consequences to hiring your friend. There's positive consequences and there's negative consequences. I want to see, I want to see how that plays out. I very much, I, if we, if, if we have an episode of where that conversation is just resolved off camera and we just hear about it, You'll find me hopping mad going into the recap for the next episode. That would be such a wasted opportunity if they go they don't go into that. This is a this is a big growing up kind of moment. This is a big rising to the professional occasion kind of moment for Keely because if anything, this is more on Keely than it's on Shandy. Shandy, we, we she doesn't have necessarily much work experience when it comes to a professional office setting in that ways. She's being immediately hired by her friend. She hasn't had boundaries set upon her to you know understand how that works. It's Keeley's job to set those boundaries. It's Keeley's job to set those expectations. And she hasn't done that yet, clearly. 
She needs and to I, get on that quickly. And Keely will be, if she's like the rest of us who've ever gone through this, she's going to be scared to give that feedback because you just don't want to be an asshole to your friend. Like that's a yeah. hard thing to do. So she's got to, it, it's, it, it's where she's earning money. Like that's how, that's why they're paying you, right? Like she's yeah. earning her money because it's a difficult thing <laughs> to do. And I, and can I say something to the writers real quick? Cause I know they listen. Please. The writers of the show, Ted Lasso. Spencer said, if this gets resolved off screen, he's not going to be happy. Now, I would like to remind you of season two when the players protested a particular company and that all got resolved off screen. And Spencer's been mad for two years over this. He doesn't let it go. Dog with a bone. Don't want to make an enemy of him. Writers resolve this shit on screen. I, I have I have lost fans on the subject of how much that still pisses me off. That is the <laughs> level of still annoyed I am at this. Stop doing the stop setting up these great moments to have a central degree of tension for the whole season, uh, wonderful character moments that characters can resolve going forward, and then just fixing them off camera because they're hard. Stop it. You're better than that. <laughs> Couldn't agree me or more, and let me give you some credit. Like I think that you taking a moment to pause to talk about that text. Is was really really good, really astute. I think I think because I think that we some people to. some people might have blown by that, but I think if I think what they're veering away from is like every single episode we're getting Roy Keeley drama, and instead mm-hmm. the growth we're going to see from Keeley isn't related to a man; it's related to her professional growth as a CEO this season. I, I hope hope that's what we're getting, and if so, this is a really big part of that story. I would love if we don't get more Keely or Rebecca relationship drama and let them actually grow and develop in terms of the roles they've picked for themselves in their lives. That would be so much more interesting to me. But we'll see. Thousand percent agree. Thousand percent. Uh, Keely, if you know, though, she also seems concerned about this. She seems to recognize in the moment, oh, uh, mm, that's not good. We'll need, probably need to think about how to address that. So I think she's aware. Uh, nope. Hick- Higgins arrives to jinx things again over Zava, and according to Higgins, Rupert's inability to thwart the Chelsea deal. Jinxing things entirely again. Ah, Jinxed it again. We do learn, though, that apparently Higgins maintains an impressive informal spy network that apparently covers all of southern England. Little birds. Didn't know? Yes, very much that. Uh, Most interesting to me, though, these are both interesting, these are great, this... This point forward in the episode, I loved almost every single scene. Starting with a little scene, Roy coming up to greet that groundskeeper. Yeah, wasn't that cool? Of where I've never seen Roy more playful. He's got a beaming smile on his face. He's playing with the guy. He seems like the feeling we get from Roy from here on out is that kind of fond, longing nostalgia. And it really seems to be driving so much of how he interacts with the people and how much he views the events around him. And it starts with this just great little scene, which is so well done between two actors of where he just seems legitimately happy to see this guy that he's not seen in years. And they have a great little moment until the guy has the, offers the horrendous mistake of offering sympathy about Keeley, because apparently that news is out broadly now. Uh, but it's still a very touching little moment. And it builds to an even more heartwarming moment from there of where he's Roy here. goes to take his seat. He's everywhere, Roy Kent. Roy Kent. The stands start to cheer. He's there. He's the everywhere, Roy Kent. Roy Kent. The Chelsea he's fans. He's there. He's there. He's everywhere, Roy Kent. Roy. It gets louder and louder. It's oh louder. my God, it's getting chills. More and more people standing. They—they're the rival team. They're here to watch his team lose, but they have to stand and cheer for their old captain. 
as just just one full moment that every now and then you just see in sports if we're forget about the game that's right here right now this matters and we all want to be here for it it's great and so Roy, this happens we, in sports it, it does, does happen where it, it does somebody's on like and it usually is the veteran who older part of their career who who does what Roy didn't do who hangs on too long and gets traded or sent away and they come back and the team cheers for them. Like I remember um, it's like a really small example, but like Paul Pierce was famously Boston Celtic won a championship with him in 08 and he was playing for the, the Washington wizards when he was like 40 mm -hmm. and last play of the game, they put him in yet played all game. Cause he's a bench warmer at this point. And he hits a three pointer with like three seconds to go. And the Boston guard just fucking explodes. Like everybody stands up screaming, <laughs> you know, cheering that he hit a three pointer, yeah. you know, obviously for the other team. I want to go back to another thing you said though, um, about Roy's approach to this, because I think that there's a parallel here for you and I, it's not quite as powerful as it will be for Roy, but it's in the same vein. And that's college because yeah. it's where Roy grew up. He got there when he was 17 years old, right? Like yeah. he grew up with Chelsea. He became successful with Chelsea, he became a man with Chelsea. I think to a certain extent, we can compare that to like a college experience, especially for me, because I went to the same school for undergrad and grad school. So I was there for six mm -hmm. years. Every time I go back, I kind of have, and some people choose not to go back for this reason. They don't like it. Um, I, I love it because I, I, I see the school that I love and I, I can I can walk around and see stuff and it's great. But there is this like this creeping sadness that like something died. It will never be the same. I'll never get those times back again. Like I have that feeling when I walk around campus. If you want to see we talked about moments that make me cry. You want to see me get properly almost sobbing. Put me back in Mangum alone. Just like an empty hall, like in between in, in between years, or whatever else. If I'm back in Mangum on my floor, back in room 106, you're going to get me sobbing straight up from that exact feeling. Straight there with you. I understand perfectly. It, it's very much what we get out of Roy this episode. And like you said, the guy probably spent like 15, 20 years of his career with Chelsea. He gr grew up, became a professional, became an all-star with this team. And now he's back. The fans are cheering. And as we saw back in season one, Roy understands how to work a fan base. He knows how to work a crowd. And so the moment this starts to happen, he gets up and he does that always gracious moment you see all-stars do. He greets the crowd, he acknowledges, he, he does his bow effectively there on stage. It's powerful, it's meaningful, it's a great moment of the episode. You want to say something before, we, before I move on? Just that, you know, I, I, I completely agree with you that I want to see more about Keeley's uh, entry into being a CEO and trying to run a business and that, but like when he's getting cheers and it cuts to her and she looks like she swallowed her tongue and all yeah. Rebecca can do is hold her hand. Like that powerful. was pretty fucking powerful it too, is. because like she's seen, she's seen the best of him. She's seen the thing that she loves, like his mm -hmm. ability to read a room, be gracious, you know, give a little, you know, when people are, are given to him, he, this is not what Roy, Roy Kent's a fuck off guy. Like this whole, like, Hey, cheer into the crowd. He's, he's doing this for the crowd to a certain extent. He's being gracious. That's the thing she really loves about him. And it was, it, it clearly hit her heart. I agree. I, I, I'm saying priorities. I still want to see a resolution to the two of them this season. I just want to. I just want to see them grow individually a lot too. Yeah, um, we're, we're in the same boat there. Uh, unfortunately, this wonderful moment is interrupted by the arrival of Zava, who immediately steals everybody's attention. It, the entire fan base, both there and in the pub, 
Even on the pitch, Danny is just positively going nuts over the fact that this worldwide all-star has now arrived here before them. Did you notice he was the Night King? How his his arms went up. It was like very this. much that, yes. And the cloud got louder Filled and louder. It's me. like he was raising Filled the dead. Me. Yes. <laughs> hey, the guy knows how to work a room too. It was effective. Oh, it did. Yeah, yeah it did. Uh, to my utter shock and glee, though, we were debating preseason expectations. From here on out in this episode, we're on the pitch. We're playing soccer. I didn't know if we'd get to see that again after season two. I was so uh-huh. happy. It seems like the approach, because obviously the writers listen to our podcast, it seems like the approach that they took is to give us everything and longer episodes. Yeah. Like we're getting all of it and and we're getting like 50 minute episodes. It's going to be hard to recap these things. We start going full like Game of Thrones length episode by episode on these things, but I'm here for it. I will rise to the occasion. Yeah, Uh, we'll make make two. We'll get it done. I adore watching them play soccer. I adore watching going through that process. It was unfortunately kind of sidelined last season. They focused on other things. Uh, however, um, I think it's fair to say Richmond isn't having quite as much fun as I am, though, uh, as they're not playing great. And, well, they're not playing horrible, but they're falling behind 1-0 at the half. And even worse, uh, in the stands, Rupert has arrived, and he greets Zava like they are the best of old friends. And Higgins is immediately choking on his own tongue. But it's it's great it's great storytelling. I mean, it's not I would maybe not great, but it's all fitting, right? It's like effective. because like it seems it seems like Richmond is overachieving in their in their defensive play, but mm. they just don't have anybody to score goals. They just don't have a striker, and that's obviously what Zava is. And here and here he comes. Uh, based on Higgins is sent off to investigate, uh, and based on what Rebecca sees from Rupert, she's utterly certain that they'll get Zava now. What follows is my favorite moment of the episode. Uh, we get a extended monologue from Rebecca on the subject of why she's certain that Rupert will get what he wants. Oh. What does it happen to her? Oh. It, it's a it's a well acted scene. It's so great in terms of learning more about the characters. It feels so perfect in terms of the description, in terms of the events that we would have assumed took place for the characters. It's just very well done writing. I mean, I wrote down the whole thing, uh, but I won't, I won't re- recite it here. But no, uh, please do. Take, give it to us. Give it to us. Uh, years ago, when I was bartending in that private club, Rupert and his wife, and then his then wife, came into the bar. He was the life and soul of the party, buying rounds of drinks for everyone, telling stories, just charm personified. And he left me a massive tip. And then about a week later, he came back without his wife and asked me out. I, of course, said no. Then he left. But then he came back the next night, and the next night, and the next, and he would just sit at the bar with a drink and chat to me until close. And he just said, it doesn't matter if you ever go out with me. It is just worth it being here to get to know you. As Keely points out, there is a fine line between stalking and romance, which every show has to try to explore. But Rebecca notes that after about six weeks of that, he asked her out again. And she said yes, without hesitation, because by that point, I just felt so lucky because he wanted me. He made me feel special, chosen. He made me feel like that, pointing over at Zappa. It's just, it's such a great scene. It's so, it feels in, per- it's like, I know somebody just wrote this, they hadn't thought about this before, but this feels like somebody just wrote a book of the prior years of their life together because of how perfectly it fits in with what we would know about these characters. And it's wonderfully delivered too. Great damn scene. Cosign everything you said? Uh, in the locker room, Ted is trying to get the team to up their offense. Like you said, they're playing too defensively. His method of doing that is with Hallmark Christmas movie references, which 
that would sell on this side of the pond, but apparently hey. the Hallmark Channel is not over there in the UK. Hey, fellas, we get one more goal. We're right back in this thing. But right now, we're being so inoffensive, we might as well be a Hallmark Christmas movie. You know what I'm saying? Crickets. Crickets. They don't. Crickets. Crickets. <laughs> yeah. Again, this, this, this fellow's heart is his field of dreams joke last episode. You got you got to aim. You got to custom tailor your material for your audience, Ted. You should learn this by this point. Ted is very American. Uh, uh, very. Uh, however, Jamie's about to offer some strategic advice about how they can improve their play going forward. But unfortunately, at this moment, Zip. Trent arrives and everybody clams up immediately. Ted reads this immediately, and he's kind of done with it. And in what is probably the most forceful, decisive, and direct we've ever seen Ted interacting with a, somebody related to the team, he pulls Roy aside, and what is probably my second or third favorite moment of the episode, he just says, hey, look, man, I don't know what your beef is with Trent, but I'm going to need you to order off the vegan menu right now and squash it, because your ego is about to sabotage a whole lot more than a silly football football match. You feel me? It's great. This is the coaching I didn't know Ted was capable of doing. And it is so on point. It is so accurate. It is so honest and not particularly abusive in a former way, because Ted couldn't be, that Roy has no argument. He immediately recognizes that it's sound advice that needs to be fixed and takes it in. Lee, you got something. Professor, Professor, I have a question. Please. When Mr. he Waterfield, says, because your ego's about to sabotage a whole lot more, than a silly football game. What do you think he meant? You bastard. I was about to ask you the same question. I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things about, it could just purely be, and this might my interpretation may be about, there's the game, there's the game, whatever else. But what was about to happen was the team themselves coming together and fixing a problem and recommending their own advice and being their own effectively kind of manager and guide and, you know, instructors kind of thing. And he's interrupting that moment. Maybe, maybe that's what he's referring to. But what do you think? Is, is, is this another thing that's harking back to his son? It, it's really hard to tell. I, I don't think there's enough straight point answer. I, 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 I think that your, your, your read could be one. I'm going to offer two more. Please. One is he realizes that if this stays up, Trent won't be able to write the book. And Trent's on the hook for the book. He's promised the book. Sure. He, the club has agreed and he could really be soiling Trent's career here. And Ted really likes Trent. Like they are friends. Like he likes this guy. He respects him. And he certainly doesn't want to be a reason that his post journalist career just fucking goes nosediving, right? Like he doesn't like that idea. That's, that's one. Third one I have, third one I have is Ted who fainted at the news earlier is slipping in something about Keeley. Interesting. Interesting. Also possible. I, I I think this is one of those moments that's so willfully ambiguous that we're just left to debate. But I think we have some interesting ideas about where this might be going. Uh, Ted, yeah. And, what do you think about Ted's coaching here? We'll get there. We'll get there in a second. I want to finish the moment first. We'll, we'll, we'll get to Ted's hallmark description here in a second. But... What do you think about Ted's coaching here? I, I, this is something I don't, this is a style of coaching or an aspect of coaching. I don't think we've seen out of Ted as much. Do you mean his coaching style as in how direct he is with Roy? Yes. Um, well, Looking no argument. I think it does kind of depend on what you think. Like the, the, that cause your ego is about to sabotage a whole lot more in a silly football match means, right? Because like mm. if you, but because if I have to pick one, if you're making me bet, I'm going to pick 
that he really is, he really doesn't like the idea that they've promised Trent he can write a book and Roy, and Roy is going to screw that up for him and mess up this guy's career. That's what I would bet. And if that is your interpretation, then it's less about his coaching in the moment, right? And it's more about, about hurting a good person, defending a defending a friend of his, defending somebody who doesn't deserve this type of treatment in this moment, to the best of Ted's knowledge. And that's very in keeping with Ted, and something we've seen him do before. Maybe, maybe. Well, uh, sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, what does Ted have to say about Hallmark movies? Oh, in Hallmark Christmas movies are films that feature women from a big city falling in love with their childhood crushes. It's usually some fellow who owns a Christmas tree farm. Sometimes he's also sometimes Santa Claus or a prince. They suck, but they're great. Most of the time they suck. But sometimes they're also great. They're great with the sound off. Now go fix this, please. I have never heard a more accurate... It's not, not amazingly condensed, but I don't think I've ever heard a more accurate description of those Hallmark signature films before. It's like, yes, that is every single Hallmark made film I've ever seen. Okay. There. Done. All right. I don't – I'm telling the God's honest truth. Spencer made me spit my matcha out when you said it's not really that condensed or concise because it really isn't. It's not condensed. It's not concise at all. It's rambling. It goes on a bit. They're extending the joke. It's such a good point. It's like great explanation. Maybe could have used less words. He needs editor. Editor. Advice for the 40 minute episodes. You can do it. Cut cut a couple cents. Roy takes this. Accepts it, nods, goes right in to call it the call to Trent. Cram! And what? It's just a great bit of physical comedy on the part of the actor. His flinch is just make make me laugh instantly. It's like no, no. Somebody threw a brick at him, kind of reaction. Uh, as, as noted, Jamie notes that it's actually quite funny when Roy yells at other people, isn't it? Uh, and then Roy hauls Trent off to a shower, where Trent, I think, quite reasonably appears to believe that he might about to be murdered and bled down the drain. Reasonable enough assumption. However, Roy instead, rather than pulling out a knife, pulls out an old newspaper clipping from his wallet, which says, merely, Newcomer Roy Kent is an overhyped, so-called prodigy whose unbridled rage and mediocre talent render his Premier League debut a profound disappointment. That was the statement by Trent Krim about Roy when Roy had just started, presumably with Chelsea at age 17. A statement that Roy just summarizes wrecked him at that age. And I believe that. That is a hell of a brutal cutting line for a new player just starting up. Apparently having a rough first game. Can I say something? Yeah, please. Caleb Love, I know you're listening. We appreciate the effort. Thank you for being a UNC Tar Heel basketball player. Thank you for everything you've done for the program. I have nothing negative to say. Well, well said, sir. Well said. I'm learning a lesson. I'm learning a lesson from Roy and Trent. What? And Trent takes that lesson to heart, of where he's immediately apologetic. He just says that he tried to appear edgy to make a name for himself, and doesn't have, doesn't have anything to you know say about it other than that he's sorry. Roy, gracious I gotta man give, that he is. I got to give Trent credit here. Yeah, got to give Trent credit. He's crow immediately. immediately he was so humble so quickly that it, yeah. it de-escalated. Like Roy had no, and Roy is the master at escalation. He can yes. escalate any fucking thing. No choice but to de-escalate here. Yeah, it, it is so, you said humble. It is so eminently humble. It is so, such a human response of fallibility that Roy has no choice but to acknowledge it and, you know, accept the apology, which is, 
Roy can be gracious, but it's not necessarily in his nature. But he's able to do it do it effectively right here. And though he does keep the article, I found that kind of funny. Is that like you know, accept the apology, but immediately folds back the article and puts it in his wallet again. This has been for his now. touchstone for a long damn time, apparently. Uh, he does note though, we had a lot in common back then. We both thought one another sucks shit at their job, and now look at us. Can I can I give an example of something sports journalists do that if Trent had done this here, I'd have been out on Trent forever. I'd have been done with him. Go on, please. Sometimes sports journalists will go in that same situation. will go and look how that motivated you. Look how much better you Fuck off. Look how I fucking hate that shit. Like you do not. Oh take my credit God. for your abuse. Yeah, I it really real that gaslighting really pisses me off when I see it. And sports journalists do it all the time to players, and I think it's bullshit. Yeah. Roy clears the clears the locker room to talk about Trent to talk now around Trent and they immediately explode with passionate suggestions about strategy about how what their game plan needs to be going forward. Meanwhile, up in the stands, uh, Higgins's informal spy network has now confirmed that they are prob- probably quite possibly screwed when it comes to Zava and West Ham. But Rebecca is not at all inclined to give up. She charges off, only to be stopped at the door by Zava's man because of course she is, uh, and then to be greeted by. What is it is, again, they have been very uh, thematic, I'd say, when it comes to both what Rupert is wearing and also his environs around him. But this complete black, almost just trench coat that he's wearing. He might as well be, go- he, he might as well breathe like this. <sighs> it is exactly he is the black hat, the black coat this season. They are flagging him in that regard. Uh, in terms of his interactions with Rebecca, he is formally polite, but also poking her on the subject of comparisons between his team's victory through their imminently knowledgeable about the sport, Nate, as compared to the implied and compared to your guy who doesn't know shit. Can I say something I really hate about Rupert? Is there just one thing? One of many. He introduces her as his ex-wife instead of the yeah. owner of Richmond. And she yeah. goes, yeah, and the owner of Richmond. Like, yeah. what a fucking yeah. prick. That it, it, he, She only exists as relational to him. I, I almost, I, I'd almost, I'd wonder whether that was an intentional slight or whether he just honestly just sees the world that way. That's why it made me so mad, is that I think that it was a natural, like, I, I think this thing with Ted, it was a pre-planned joke and whatever. Yeah. Whatever. Think he really is slip. that self-centered, and he and he really is that condescending to women that I he really it. would introduce her this way. Yeah. Well, in terms of self-absorbed people, though, we got to give Zava some props because his line—he's he gre- <laughs> up there. <laughs> he, he greets Rupert pretty warmly, but the only thing he says to Rebecca is, "It's an honor for you to meet me." That is one mm. of the more profoundly. Hey, there's a concise line to sum up. Oh, you're self-absorbed. Gotcha. I mean, that's like that's like. That's a line you would hear in wrestling. It's so ridiculous. It's parody. Like it's, it's parody. Yeah, wording. like the Rock would Hollywood Rock would have said this in two thousand eight. Yeah, uh, Rebecca tries to keep a stiff upper lip as you know Zaba just walks off afterwards. And even you know it's like I hey, know he's gonna look great uh, playing for Chelsea, uh, but is a bit rocked when Rupert explaining why he changed team loyalties to West Ham says, "Oh, I guess I'm just like any man." Just got bored with the same old, same old, looking at Rebecca with the clear implication that, so as I behaved with you, I have behaved with teams, my dear. Uh, he walks off. And it, it's one of the things that reminds us that Rupert is charming. And 
I will say that he is mostly a villain on the basis of events that occurred before the series and the role and perspectives of other people on him being an opponent. However, let it never be said that he's also not still an asshole. The guy's a joke. Yeah, he left he left something on the table here, right? Because like he could have said, "Well, Rebecca, I do love Richmond, but you in the divorce, you made absolutely sure I couldn't own it. So like in order to be involved in football, I had to buy a different team." Like he had an answer, but he instead went to the you're old, you're not attractive, you're not desirable, same old fucking dig to Rebecca. I hope I hope that this character saw how like pathetic that is that he keeps going back to that same fucking it, well. It would have been petty. much if he wanted to undercut her, it would have been much more effective for him to say, Yeah, and then you took that away from me, and then you tried to ruin it. Let's never forget that, shall we? And then you banned me from the box to even see the games. What choice did I have but to go elsewhere? I think that would have been more effective if you wanted to cut her a bit. Uh, Agreed. As said, Rupert walks off. Rebecca, though, is not done trying. And goes to what is wonderfully summarized later as sour yell at Zava in the bathroom while he's peeing. Essentially calling him a coward, saying that you've never actually played for anyone where you'd actually be able to show off your talents and stand on your own. And now you're going to go join West Ham because it's big and shiny. LeBron. And LeBron. LeBron James. <laughs> LeBron James. LeBron James. 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 Uh, so your, your comments apply to Caleb Love, but no other player. Understood. Um, so <coughs> she, she tells him that you know, you're going to go join teams where you're, you can just mask behind teams that are already going to win. You'll never actually see how you would stand on your own because you're an idiot. You're overpaid. You're, you're a coward. You're overpaid. You're overrated. And you eat way too much fucking asparagus. I'm out. Drops the mic and charges <laughs> out of the room. Well, the guy's still peeing the entire what a, time. What a moment. On the pitch, though, the team is finding their groove. And in an exchange that I'm... Fair to say he's equal parts skill and luck. There's a badly missed, there's a wonderful pass to Sam, a badly missed shot by Sam, which then leads perfectly to a miracle header by Danny to earn the draw. Securing Richmond a point and keeping their hopes alive in the Premier League. The fans go nuts. The announcers are completely surprised. God's will, sir. God's will. Providence is guiding the ball. Team of destiny. Uh, Everyone is just over the moon, excited. Uh, Including even Chelsea, because they still got a draw, and what they're really looking forward to, though, is that they are expecting to sign Zava here at the end of the match. Managers out Spencer. there, they've got the pen and the contract ready. Yes, sir. Have you ever scored with your face? Have ever scored with my face? Yeah. Uh, no, I was always a defender when I played soccer, so I didn't actually good score. I was setting you up. Remember when the announcer got asked that question, and he said, I've scored with every part of my body. That's every part of my body, question. yes. <laughs> So, for God, yes. Uh, I did play soccer for quite a few years, though. It was actually quite a bit of fun. Um, but everybody's excited. Everybody's nuts. Zava's getting here now to sign. All the Chelsea fans are waiting for this wonderful moment. But, seemingly inspired by Rebecca, Zava instead announces that he will not be signing for Chelsea. He will be joining Richmond. Dum, the- dum, dum! If the fans could have hit even more of 11 than they were a minute ago, they've found it. Everyone's going nuts. The team is going nuts, except for one player. We'll come back to that. All are over the moon, and Rupert can only spit and sputter in his limo, having been thoroughly thwarted. The one player, though, that has a very interesting response to this is Jamie. Did you know what Jamie said when the news came out? Um, 
Yeah, Jamie, I wrote it down. Um, uh, he Jamie, said Jamie's not fans, happy, yeah. He said the fans will hate this, which is wrong. Fans are nuts. Fans are not going to like this. Yeah, exactly. But perhaps he's offering other people to speak for himself. Perhaps Jamie doesn't like this. We got you, uh, Why do we think that might uh, be? We got you, Zava. Uh, because uh, uh. he's a, he's yeah. a striker. Because Jamie's a striker. Like he he doesn't want to be replaced. Zava, we got you, Zava. What a I, good song. I, I think I think it's very much that that it's somebody stepping into an offensive role that Jamie occupies, uh, or will now have to you know compliment him with. I think it's also that Jamie's very very much appreciates and enjoys the atmosphere of this club. He very much likes the camaraderie that he's been able to build and establish with them. I think he rightfully sees that some of these like Zava that everybody else has been acknowledging is going to be disruptive. What they have is going to have to change because Zava is going to because Zava is not going to work well with it. And that's Ted going to be interesting to is, see play out. Ted is going to fire this guy. That's my prediction. I how, don't think this is going quickly? to last. He would rather lose how games quickly? than have a jackass like this. I uh, I, I, three episodes. Reasonable bet. And I, I think Jamie expects this guy's going to be an asshole. I think he's expected he's going to start fights with other players, that he's going to butt heads with Jamie, and he's not looking forward to it. Uh, that night, back at the team ranch, Beard heads out to, and I quote, an immersive theater show about the menstrual cycle, which sounds like a vagina monologue send-up, I think, based on that description. All right. All right. Well, hope you're not late. <laughs> I didn't catch that. I didn't catch that. That was clever. Uh, I also notes that Jane is apparently so uh, threatened by Ted, and, by Ted and Beard's relationship that he can't even pass on Ted's hellos to Jay. Again, their relationship works, but it is a weird damn thing. Yep. Uh, we get from here, though, another of my absolute favorite moments of the episode, just because it's so wonderfully acted and delivered, of where now it is just Roy, Trent, and Ted are there in, they're in Ted's office together. And they ask Roy about how he felt how he felt being back at Chelsea. And he reveals that it was sad. That he left because he had a sudden moment of realization that after he had a bad game and what ultimately was a bad season, that he can't keep up anymore. That he's not good enough. That the moment that he's having right now is the best he'll ever be, and from here it will just be downhill. And so to the shock of everybody, he left. He left. The fans, the press, the team, everybody was shocked. But he didn't want to be one of those broken-down old footballers that was just taking up space. He didn't want to be the bench warmer that's there to his retirement that everybody then cheers when they make the last three or whatever else. He wanted to leave the place that he'd been uh, grown up so they wouldn't see him in that light. They wouldn't have that memory of him. This is our debate about do you want to stay around forever or leave at the high point kind of thing. Um, yep. But going back there today, there's a part of him that realizes that maybe he should have just stayed and fucking enjoyed himself. But it's not who he is. It's not the person that he is. It's not in his nature to do that. And as Trent points out hereafter, perhaps there's certain comparisons here that, you know, metaphors, as it were, between this and maybe his relationship with Keeley. Who could say? Here to ponder. Ted does note, though, that, you know, if you hadn't left, we never would have met, and bats his eyes most flirtatiously. Roy gives Trent the most lovely, you see the fu- what the fuck I put up with kind of look which Trent can only just, you know, kind of chuckle and shrug at as well. And the, uh, them head out with Trent noting the metaphor, with Ted commenting that sport is a wonderful nickname, and I agree. And with our episode ending from there on what is another very well-delivered, 
the back half of this episode, which is so many wonderful character moments of characters just talking about their perspective on events and the things that have happened to them. And that to be able to do that well without it breaking the flow, without it feeling, you know, utterly inauthentic, that's just quality writing and well set up characters. And the show I need to acknowledge that more about the show, about how well it can do that. Yeah, and uh the song uh at the end is Night's Failing by Andrew Bird. Uh good song. I just wasn't uh, I wasn't aware of it though. I didn't, I didn't know that song. Yeah, I I really like the whole thing with Roy and his explanation about how he feels like maybe he left some joy on the table. Like he could have like that thing that he was getting today where everybody that nostalgic like love he was getting, mm-hmm. he could have got that for a few more years at Chelsea. If he would have just stuck around or maybe even gone back after playing for Richmond a year or two. Uh, but he, it's not in his nature. Um, the not in his nature part. I didn't like that, that line as much. Because I mm-hmm. felt like what that line did is cast judgment on the previous path that he just explained. Like the writers are saying, like, that's not really the path you should do. The sort of, you know, stay around a few more years and be like kind of the locker room leader well, and old should. guy you, and get you, some you, cheers. You should, you should leave at your high point. Don't extend this beyond three, you know, seasons or whatever else. You should exit when you're at your prime. Don't wait to go downhill later. I understand, Roy. Don't, don't, don't you know, don't, don't, don't criticize yourself too much for this. Keep going, you know, and eventually you might stumble upon a very great concluding episode or concluding season that's an election that's a lot of fun, you know. Yeah, so yeah. You, you just have to filter for a few seasons of crap there and hire an entire new actor base to make it work. But, you know, yeah, yeah. I understand your point of view. Different definitions of crap. Okay, do you want to go to our segments? We can start with Sports Center Top 10, where we discuss not 9, not 11, but 10. 10 on the nose. 10 exactly every week. Ah. Things that excited us, interested us about the episode. I will rapidly try to cut 32 entries off my list. Actually, no, 37, because I'm presuming you've got a couple, a few, a few yourself. Uh, would you like to yeah. start or shall I? I'll start with the uh, Zava comparison. So Let's talk Zava, about the Zava character very clearly, very clearly is ba- uh, based on a guy named Zlatan. Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Ibrah- Ibrahimovic. Ibrahimovic, mm. I think. Um, and he is a Swedish football player who plays striker uh, right now for AC Milan and the Swedish <laughs> national team. He has played, by my count... I, I counted nine. Nine separate clubs over his career. I counted 11. So it's somewhere Jesus between... Like nine, nine and 11 in 20 years. So he is, at, on average, changing clubs every two years. Mm-hmm. And Sometimes he, returning to the same club at different points again. Scored a ton of golds. Uh, he's won a bunch of trophies, 34 different trophies in his career. So Leslie, Leslie had that comment about Higgins, that comment about trophies. Trophies he scored, and chaos. He scored 570 career goals, including more than 500 club goals, which is a fucking lot. Also very active on social media, just like my, po- my, my co-host Spencer. <laughs> Zlatan has over 55 million Instagram followers, making him the most followed Swede in the world. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I counted down the list for points. He is 13th in history in terms of most goals scored, in terms of total goals, not just not just club goals. It was fun, though, who was at the top of the list, because I had actually heard of all three people who were at the top of the most scoring list. Do you want to guess? Ronaldo? Ronaldo is number one, with over 800. 830 uh, Pele? by the Wikipedia's guy. Pele? Pele? Pele's number three with 762. Okay, Ronaldinho? Nope. Okay, who? Messi! Me- 
Ne- oh, ne- yeah. How the fuck did I forget Ronda Rousey? Yeah, of course it's Messi. Ne- Messi with an even 800. Yeah. It, I mean, the comparisons just seem rife. I mean, this guy's had a, something like a 24-year career. He's an incredible, incredible scorer and striker. He's done wonderfully for all, for all the teams he's been with. Is it also fair to say that he has a bit of a reputation for being kind of an asshole, or at least starting a lot of fights with fellow teammates? It's interesting. He is an he claim, seems to be an asshole in soccer when he is playing yes. soccer, when he is interacting with teams, when he's deciding which teams to play. But he has done things like pay millions of dollars to send the Swedish national team to the Special Olympics when they mm-hmm. didn't have any funding to go. Like he's done a like if you I, I just got this from his Wikipedia page and then a few other articles about him. He's done a bunch of things like big money charity things that seem like they're really good hearted and he also posts a lot of like really like passionate support things on social media about certain movements that are going on like syria or you know certain you know areas of the world that may might need our concern Zlatan will absolutely put a magnifying glass on but if you hire him to score goals for your team, he likely he'll will probably call your punch co- a fellow player. He'll call your coach a prick and he'll quit halfway through the season. It's been a you know what he is mix. What he's the he's the soccer equivalent in wrestling of CM Punk. I don't I don't get the reference. Explain. Well, CM Punk is a just an absolutely wonderful wrestler. He uh, has scored. Uh, scored. He's uh, he's, yeah. he's gotten the title a bunch of times. He's one of the best performers they have. He's really good on the microphone. But man, he's constantly getting fired and fighting with the fucking promotion and saying he's not being treated right. And he like most recently he had a uh, a press conference where he said um, he uh, he works with fucking children. He said that, which was really great. Um, he's been fi- fired a bunch of times, but he also is a guy who constantly doing things for the community. Mm-hmm. constantly giving money to things like homeless shelters or, um, you know, uh, school districts that struggle to have enough money for, for kids' textbooks, stuff like that. It's all the time with this guy. Very similar to his Latan, I think. Mm-hmm. But he, he seems like he seems like it's a very interesting player. I'm curious to learn more about him. He's also part of what has been a growing trend in recent years. He got caught sports betting a couple years ago and got fined a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of players are starting to get involved in that, I'm afraid. It's gotten a lot easier. Hmm. Uh, next Pistol, on sports entertainment, like hmm? like our like little Pete Rose situation. Not no, not I don't think to that degree. But I'll, I'll, I'll need to read more about it. Um, the episode title, continuing a, a run of song title names. I don't want to go to Chelsea is a 1978 song by Elvis Costello and his band The Attractions from their second album, This Year's Model. I'd never actually heard the song before. Thought it was just okay. Ah, here we go. Just okay. I like it. Um, what? Wasn't really my style. A lot of Elvis Costello is an underrated meh performer. Like, it's underrated (laughs) how meh Elvis Costello is. He's had some good songs. This was just not really one of them, I didn't think. He's it's a lot of meh, but people wouldn't necessarily say that. I I agree with that take. So they uh, this was a lot of this was filmed uh, fictionally. At the place that Chelsea plays football, Stamford Bridge is a football stadium at Fulham, adjacent mm-hmm. to the borough of Chelsea in West London. It seats 40,341. Here's the thing I found most interesting about Stamford Bridge. This fucking stadium was opened in 1877. It has been remodeled since, but yeah, the joys of old Europe kind of stadiums that 
man, they 18, got some history. Eighteen seventy-seven. There was there was like still people who like worked with Lincoln, like walking around. Yeah, like that was a long ass time ago. I, that's when it. That's when it opened. At, at the original stadium apparently had had over a hundred thousand. Uh, it accommodated over a hundred thousand fans. They've actually scaled it down. So this thing was freaking colossal back in the day. Still huge. Hmm, um, I was also prof- I was reading about. It. I was profoundly disappointed to see that it was not named after one of the most important battles in English history, the Battle of Stamford Bridge back in 1066. It's just named after a different Stamford Bridge that's in southern England. I was very disappointed. Um, hmm. Next thing for me, Good Morning Vietnam. Good morning, Vietnam. Is a 1987 comedy drama set during the early Vietnam War, starring Robin Williams as an armed forces radio service DJ. In what uh, I've seen the film, I like the film. One of his most improv-focused performances, I think, because basically everything that he says when he's on the radio is just Robin Williams riffing. Uh, won, despite the fact that it was him riffing throughout most of it, or maybe because of it, it won him, his, won him a Golden Globe and earned him one of his nominations for Academy Award and a BAFTA. Uh, he's also playing an uh, playing a real life person, Adrian Cronauer, uh, who was an actual AFRS DJ, whose experiences the film I would say are very is very loosely based around. And in terms of success, the film made back ten times its production budget. So I think you and I both will agree that that one made money. Cool. Um, so the one that I will bring up is Hallmark Christmas movies. Go on, I've got it on my list, but I want to hear you say it. So I don't have that much on it. I, I have that. Uh, you're trying to get a count of Hallmark's Christmas movies. It's very, very difficult. Oh, it's kind of like, it's like if you're watching The Last of Us and you're trying to get a count of like how many people are infected, it just multiplies. So mm-hmm. in the period between 2008 and 2017, they made 136. Between 2017 and 2023, they've made like 200. So they continue to like exponentially do more and more every year. Here's the thing I want to say about Hallmark Christmas movies. They are always more exciting in theory than they are in practice. So you're sitting around on Christmas Eve and you're like, you know what we should do? We should watch a Hallmark Christmas movie. Man, we're really good in the spirit for Christmas. You turn it on, they suck. They do kind of suck. Ted's right about that. But there is one Hallmark Hallmark Christmas movie I would like to draw everybody's attention to that will be coming out this Christmas on the Hallmark Hallmark Movie Channel called Christmas at the Biltmore, filmed right here in Asheville. Really? They're actually filmed it over about 10 miles from my house. Richie Rich style? Biltmore House. They filmed the whole thing there. They used um, local Asheville, uh, Ashevillians. As they're, as they're called as extras, and the whole thing was shot on site in America's largest privately owned home. Uh, quiz question, by the way. Did, did you know what the name of the Hallmark Channel was originally? No, what? The American Christian Television System, also I, called the Vision Interfaith Satellite Network. And then after that, that the Faith and Values Channel, then Odyssey, and then the Hallmark oh, Channel. Oh, the after. Faith and Values Channel. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Then after that, uh, Hallmark Entertainment and the Jim Henson Company, oddly enough, bought shares, and so they kind of rebranded it a little bit. Uh, next one from me, uh, did you know what Clamato was? Because I didn't. Yeah, Clamato is like um, is like a tomato juice that you put beer in, right? It, it you can put you put a few things in it, but it's tomato juice concentrate flavored with spices, MSG, and the one that surprised me, dried clam broth. Hence why it's called yeah, Clamato. People, yeah, people that, that the vast majority of that juice is bought to to drink with beer. People uh, do like half and halves with that with Clamato and beer. 
Um, yeah. And that's it, a big, very popular thing, especially it, with older people. It's apparently been made since 1966 by Mott's in its current form, though the original Clamato Corporation of New York started making a drink with clam and tomato juice back in 1935. Uh, according to sales, you know, as you said, it's almost... Nobody just drinks this straight. It's basically uniformly used as a mixer for uh, beer and also vodka, with the main dr- main mixed drink being a Caesar, which is vodka, hot sauce, Worcestershire, celery stalk and salt, pepper, lime, and sometimes horseradish. Apparently, it's a, you want to hear something not- that's really fucking unhealthy. Um, so the idea of drinking beer with tomato juice uh, started. My understanding is it started in the military and it was a way to introduce young kids to alcohol, to get them to drink, to actually get the way to get the beer down was to cut it with tomato juice. I mean, for a significant portion of British military history for the Royal Navy, there was still a a rum ration. You had to get the kids, you had to get the, the, the boys that are moving on the deck used to the necessary alcohol. It's part of their diet. Tomato will do it. Um, it's, it's notable also that it is the three main countries it's sold in are Canada, Mexico, and the U.S., but it's overwhelmingly the first two. It's apparently a Canadian-Mexican tradition eat among their immigrant communities in the U.S. to mix Clamato with various drinks. I've never even seen it before, but apparently people enjoy it. Not this person. I, I've got I've got three or four more. You, you got any other ones? Ah, you fire away. You're on a roll this week. Uh, Let's see here. Kafka, which I didn't know before, is a Mexican liqueur coffee that is made uh, by Licores Veracruz in Cordoba, Mexico. Brief one on that. Uh, Ayahuasca. Have you ever heard of that before? That that hallucinogen? Yes, ayahuasca. Yeah, apparently it's a it's a necessity if you're going to be the Packers quarterback. Yeah, it's a thing that's gotten really popular in recent years. Uh, celebrities go down, they do big ayahuasca trips down in Mexico, and they spend, like, you, you, you do this thing. Here's my understanding of it. I've never done it. Is you do it, and it will necessarily get you sick. You are going to vomit when you do it. But then you trip balls for like two days and people come out of it and say that they're significantly changed. The the thing that was, I was introduced to it first time when Robin Quivers, who is the, uh, the, the sidekick of Howard Stern, she does the, ah, okay. she does the, the color commentary with Howard Stern on the Howard Stern show. Um, she, she, she's like the, I think she started as like the weather person, but over time she's just kind of, you know, get, chimes in every once in a while on the show. She did it. And Howard spent, seven years making fun of her. I mean, it was like brutal making fun of her for doing this. And, and that, that was my introduction to ayahuasca. Uh, interestingly enough, I was looking at, trying to look up what the ingredients of it were, but there is no set ingredient list because it's basically each shaman has their own blend when it comes to what various vines and shrubs they put in this thing. Uh, I don't trust so, that. Interestingly enough, the active ingredient is a schedule one controlled drug, but the actual plants that they get the active ingredient from are perfectly legal. So you can grow it, you can consume it, but if you just try to refine it and only send out the hallucinogenic component, that would get you in prison. It's like peyote. It's an interesting little quirk in the law when it comes to that. Uh, also, like some other hallucinogens, it's actively being explored right now, beyond its traditional and social uh, uses, to treat varieties of conditions, including depression and addiction, including notably alcohol addiction in particular, at least according to what they're researching. Uh, they're also even doing research on it to use it in vitro and in vivo for the purpose of increasing neuron development. So 
Perhaps they're just throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks, but they're exploring it actively right now. Uh, two more things. Juventus, the team that we heard that Wazabi worked for previously. Uh, my knowledge of soccer is limited. Did not realize that they were prof- they're actually a professional football club in Turin, Italy. Uh, it was founded in 1897. All the best things are back in the 19th century. And has one of, if not the largest, fan bases nationally in Italy. They've won 70 official competitions more than any other club in the history of the country. And are one of the most winning teams in the history of the world. Um, actually, until the first Europa Conference League final in 2022, they were the only club in the world that had won every single available men's confederation competition at some point in its history. They haven't won that one yet, because it's new, but they've won every other one that exists, far more than any other team. They've got like won five separate confederations in history, close to one to them is three. God uh, damn. Final, final thing, just because it amused me. Ten. Ten on the nose. CDs. Excited to learn a little bit more about the history and current state of CDs. I hadn't thought about them in a while. Compact discs. They're a digital optical disc data storage made of polycarbonate plastic that was originally built by Philips in Germany and Sony in Japan and sold back in the fall, for the first time in the fall of 1982 in Japan. They were originally world-changing in terms of what these things could store. Picture your current data storage. These things blew everyone's mind in the fact that they could store between 74 and 80 minutes of audio or between 650 megabytes or 700 megabytes of data. This was literally world-changing when this came out. Now, point of comparison, like when, when we first got computers, we still had floppy disks every now and then, too. We still had those available. Those, sure. little th- those were like the main competitors to CDs when they came around, and the classic you know, 3.5-inch floppy disk holds 1.4 megabytes of data. 1.4 versus up to 700. It's quite a difference. Changed quite a bit. I mean, 700 was more than computer disk drives at the time. Like, computers that were out at the, out the period, 1982, they had like 10 megabyte disk drives. This thing was colossal. You could store a Library of Congress on this thing by perspective. At least they thought you could. Uh, what's a fun debate, though, is that obviously CDs have been heavily associated with music. No one's actually really sure what the first music album was that came out on CD. There's a lot of debate on the subject just based on how you want to define it. We'll start with this category. If you had to assume, just basing your, your intimate knowledge of music in 1982, which artist w- released the first album in Japan when they were being sold commercially? Who was number one on the catalog? Rolling Every Stones. Drunk- Reasonable guess, but every drunk college student's favorite. Journey. Close. Billy Joel. So many friends were singing Piano Man whenever they were drunk at a bar. But it was uh, Billy Joel's 1978 album, 52nd Street, was the first on the list of the uh, albums that were being sold in the catalog in Japan. However, that was probably the one that, first one that was marketed for sale. The first one produced, like made for sale, they believe, was ABBA's 1981 album, The Visitors. However... That that was produ- produced in Germany is probably the first ones they made. We're going to specifically sell this now. There's a lot of ones that were before then, the various test recordings. The Bee Gees 1981 album Living Eyes, which was played on the BBC in 1981. Even like an orchestral poem by Richard Strauss, which I can't pronounce. It's very German, but they were making these things in Germany, was probably done earlier. And no one's quite sure from really there. There were a lot of test ones that were done, done before that. But most likely they think that ABBA and Billy Joel were the first ones that were made and the first ones that were sold. Uh, sales and CDs peaked. If you had to guess, when do you think when, when do you think was the peak year for CD sales? Nineteen ninety five. You are good. You're close. Nineteen ninety nine. Nineteen ninety nine. Two thousand. That kind of that, that kind of um, for at least for the U S. 
was the, was the high point. Up in 2000, they sold nearly a billion CDs that year for music. Sounds right. I was buying a lot of them myself. Uh, shout been, out, shout out, Limp Biscuit. They've they, they've been in steady decline since. Uh, as of 2021, for example, they sold either just over or around 45 mil, just over 40 or around 45 million CDs. A, medi- a meteoric decline from from around about the 2000 period, though notably increased from the year earlier as part of what is, I think, in fairness, a bit of a Maybe nostalgia, midway going up, of people starting to enjoy physical media again, at least to a certain degree. Because the same thing's been happening. Vinyl sales are passing CDs now for the first time in years, as that's going up meteorically. You included, reverse meteorically. However you want to do it. But you, you, you yeah, I can tell you why. Why? I, I can tell you why I do it because um, if you buy a record, or if, if I buy a record, and I've got it in my home and I've got a record player in a room where the record player is. I'm very intentional when I sit down to play it in a way that I'm not when mm-hmm. I play something on my cell phone. And I find that I appreciate the music more. So it forces me to sit down, be intentional about what I want to play, when I want to play it, where I want to play it. And I end up appreciating the music a lot more. So that, that I have like a hundred CD are a hundred uh, records now that I have in my record collection that I've gotten over the past year for that exact reason that I find myself, if I just got AirPods in, I'm listening to an iPhone. I am just listening to music mindlessly. But if I'm, I'm in my, my record player room with my records, I actually pay attention to the music. Do you know offhand? What was the first music album you bought on CD? Can you remember back then on CD? I would, I don't know, but I think the, the the one of the strongest guests I could make probably is Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette. Probably that's very high, solid, or maybe Solid Call. Yeah, that's probably the first one I bought with my money. First one ever bought for me was probably the Lion King soundtrack. <laughs> Good call. Absolutely. Well, given that that is, of course, exactly ten and never more or less than ten, uh, that is all I've got. What a wonderful segment! Yeah, shout out ten on the nose, not nine on eleven. Tens we like ten things we liked about the episode. Let's go to train wreck of the episode, and then we'll do Ted's life lessons of the episode. Train wreck of the episode. Oh, it's an interesting one because like, most everyone, most everyone's doing pretty well this episode. Most everyone's on an upward trend. Most everyone's ending up pretty well. I mean, Rupert failed, but it didn't feel like a train wreck. I'm kind of struggling with an answer to this one. Maybe maybe Roy just yeah. has the realization in terms of he's going through a bit of a mixed nostalgia sadness, but there's a I think Roy. I think I might pick Roy. I'm gonna pick Jane. If you're a sleepwalker oh, and you don't know it at if you're a sleepwalker and you don't know it at Jane's age, that's a problem. That's a big that's a big problem. Yeah, I would say yeah, Jane She knows. She might be walking out in traffic. She might be walking downstairs. She might be she might be ambient sleeping. She might be going to the grocery Ooh. store. She might be eating two mm. tubs of peanut butter and not know it. It's a big problem. I would say Jane is the train wreck of the episode. Fair bit. Okay, Ted's life lessons of the episode. I have one, and I would like to then pass it over to you to see what you think. I would say Ted's life lessons of the episode, which you know, oftentimes don't come from Ted. These are just life lessons that are gleaned from the episode. I'm going to say the lesson inherent in the Roy Trent interaction and the lesson that I, that popped off the screen to me for that was Roy was carrying around this resentment, which was this guy said this thing about me. And I bet you it probably didn't cross Roy's mind that that guy has been carrying around regret 
for saying said thing Mm -hmm. for just as long and maybe just as intensely intently, or at least pretty intently. Um, Oftentimes we assume like the best in ourselves and the worst in other people, right? When, when other people say a thing, we think, oh, well, of course he meant that. And you know, there's probably more where that came from. And we don't often think, well, maybe that person was having a bad day, said a thing, got home, regretted it, and has hated it ever since. Like, because that happens a lot. Like, mm-hmm. and so it, I think it's, it's this lesson of like not assuming the worst in other people whenever you hear something you don't like. Because Roy did that. He assumed that's who Trent was. That's how he operated. That's what Trent thought of him for what? 20 years until he finally like talked about the resentment and figured out that Trent regretted saying it. I think that's a really good call. I think that's an accurate kind of thing. I mean, Roy is, he's a good person, but he's very much a self-centered one. I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way, just how he carries himself. And so I think that's a very accurate read that he probably never saw that from Trent's perspective when he was in terms of thinking about it. It was always just putting Trent in the role of the villain because that's what Roy needed rather than what necessarily it actually was. Do you have any life lessons you glean from the episode other than always prep for the top 10 segment and, and crush it? Yes, I will never let that one leave me again. In fact, I actually did a transcript that I typed up of exactly the words that you offered me after the last episode. I'm now keeping in my wallet forever. I thank you for that, sir. It will motivate me. Uh, but no, when it comes I to I immediately episode, regretted it. Uh, <laughs> no, no, you didn't. You're my villain. I need you as this. Don't actually, don't put yourself in the role as a human. Uh, no, one, there's one little one. Yeah, shut up, Trid Grimm. Uh, Roy's little note to the self throughout so much of this episode, a useful reminder that nostalgia, that kind of longing looking back or that regretful looking back, it's not about what you needed then. It's about what you need now or what you think you need now. When you look back and you're regretting the actions that you did at that time, don't always see them as mistakes. Don't always see them as foibles. Don't always see them as, I wish I'd done this other thing or I would have been so much better, whatever else. That doesn't matter, really. That's outside of your control. And you then did what you thought was right. What you're doing is you're trying to analyze things that make you unhappy about your life now or things that are difficult about right now. Though the human nature is to always view them from a past perspective but how different they could have been or whatever else. All you're really doing on is not reflecting about mistakes you made, but about various events that are unhappy or unsatisfied about your life now. So view them not as, oh, woe is me, where things went wrong. View them as, okay, I've narrowed down what makes me unhappy, what makes me difficult, things about my life I want to get better. I've done it through perspective of events that I've gone through before. Now that I know, now I can, now I can actually focus on making them better. A better way to look at nostalgia or look at that kind of unhappy longing that we so often do. I like it. Well said. All right. I think that's a wrap on our segment. Spencer, any concluding thoughts about episode two of season three here at Ted Lasso? I mean, I, I think I think I have a bit of the feeling that it was a little bit overlong, that there were a few extra scenes that were put in there. Like you said, it seems like they were doing a style now where they're trying to give us just more, more of all kinds of things, more of all things Lasso. Most of the time it worked. A few scenes just felt like they could have been left on the editing room floor. And I kind of preferred back in the day when they were, tight, breezy, 30-minute episodes of television. But that said, more lasso is not a problem. It's great stuff, and this has some of the best character moments we've had in the series scattered throughout this episode. So the overall package, I think, could have used a little bit of an editor at times. It made for some absolutely all-star moments. Yeah, it's not great radio, but I I just agree with everything you said there. That's that's exactly what I was going to say, which is if I have any 
quibbles with the episode, it's that there are some things that were included that weren't needed that I think was mm-hmm. a little bit of fan service that, you know, just giving us more, giving us some of the more lasso esque jokes. But, you know, I, I don't know that for me personally, they're going to top Roy getting cheered, you know, and the, and them doing surprising yeah. him, the fans organically surprising him with the Roy Kent chant. I don't know that you're going to top that for me just because as a sports fan, that's so loaded mm-hmm. with so many. And, and now that I have some age on me, like that's so loaded with how many athletes I've loved and seen aged and seen similar things happen to that. That was a really epic moment for me of the show. But it seems to me this it's a the season so far. If I if I had to do a comparison, it's it's. It's season two, right? It's it's season. It's in the vein of season two. They're making the show the same way they made season two. It's just slightly better. It's just a little bit. It's like it's not. They haven't gone back to season one and the tight thirty minute episodes and everything is on pace for this one controlled story. It's a little bit more all over the ba- place, like season two was, but it's just a touch up in quality for me. I think that's a fair summary. I like I like that way of describing it. But hey, season two was still fine. Season two better. I'm here for it. Absolutely. Okay. A lot of fun. Thanks, Spencer, for doing this. Thanks for leaving the recap like you do every week. I enjoyed this. We will be back with you next week to review episode three of Ted Lasso season three. And in the meantime, go on over to the Line of Succession podcast feed. Subscribe to that because Spencer and I will be reviewing season four, the final season of Succession week by week. I'll be leading that recap. We'll be doing handoffs here midweek between the two podcast feeds, <laughs> doing two pods a week. That's big for me and Spencer. Never done that before. So uh, if we're a little late on some here or there, sorry, you know, we're doing our best. But uh, we are, we do commit to getting you at least a review episode of each of those seasons on each of the podcast feeds as we go forward. So we will be back with you on this podcast feed next week. Episode three. Hope everybody has a great week. See you.